Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 58 of Link to the Cast, your weekly dose of video games and nerd culture ephemera. On the show this week, the Switch is performing well, and I have put its durability to the test. Internet drama engulfs games media personalities, causing one race row, one resignation, and one baffled reviewer. A new Dreamcast game? And our book club this week tackles arguably the greatest wrestling game ever made. It's No Mercy on the N64. Let's get this shit show on the road. This is episode 58 of Link to the Cast. I'm your party host, Dave Ryan, joined on the line as I am each and every week by the platforming prodigy, Mark Robinson. Mark, how are you? Greetings. Glad to be here as always. How's it going? Ah, not too bad. Not too bad. I'm, I'm, I'm up remote rather than sitting beside you in the sitting room uh, and any regular listener will know that's because we have a special guest this week and we can't figure out how to get two mics coming out of the same computer. Our guest this week is a very special guest indeed, and a guest I have been a fan of for quite some time, and Mark is as well. You may know him from How To Wrestling, Cinema Swirl, or the Attitude Era podcast. It's Kevin Mann. Kevin, how are you? Hello, I'm very well. Thanks for having me on the link to the cast. Indeed, we we, we, we do love a pun here, uh, as you might have been able to tell from our show's name, uh, the incredibly clever pun of Link to oh, the it's, Cast. Oh, it's a rule of mine. If I don't have a pun in the title, I won't appear on the show. So, you know. <laughs> well, that's that, that's solid. Then we, we, we've, we've come up with, with several ideas for podcasts where we've come up with a pun too good that we probably will have to do it eventually. Um, <laughs> I, I, myself and Mark's favorite one is when they re- release uh, WCW Thunder on the network. We have come up with a podcast idea called Day of Thunder, where we oh, watch all of them. And when we came up with that pun, we said, well, now we have to do it. So, <laughs> And I feel like I've been Would dragged into that because I, I, I didn't agree <laughs> to it. And so I'm not like overly familiar with like WCW 2000, 2001. And uh, when I moved over here, one of the first things Dave did is he sat me down to watch New Blood Rising. And I've still not, A, forgiven him for it, and B, fully recovered. And yet you're 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 not running away when he mentions the possibility of reviewing Thunder. Seriously, cut ties with this yeah. man. <laughs> clean, clean I've done break. enough to harm our friendship. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a that's going to be a harrowing time. But they still haven't dropped it on the network yet, so I know it's coming at some point. Gee, I wonder why that is. I wonder why they've not put that up yet. <laughs> that gem. They're just holding it out for when the subscriber numbers start to drop. <laughs> Uh, Kevin, how are you? How are things in the world of podcasting at the moment? You're a busy man. I'm a very, very busy man. Um, I did, recently started podcasting full time and dedicating my whole life to podcasting. You know, thinking that oh, that will be my job. That means I have loads more time. And now I just realise how you know how much I should have been doing. So I'm even busier than before. But it's good cranking out podcasts. Uh, you know, watching lots and lots of wrestling. Uh, times are good. That's good, good, good to hear. You got, you got three podcasts on the go. Uh, you want to tell the listeners a little bit about each one, maybe? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I made my uh, my name originally with the Attitude podcast where me and my pals Adam and Billy went back and reviewed all of the original pay-per-views from WF's Attitude Era, which would have been around at the time this uh, amazing game we'll be looking at later came out. Uh, we go through it blow by blow, kind of looking and seeing if the old nostalgia played a bit of a factor. Spoiler, it did. And then I've got a <laughs> Cinema Swirl, which I do with my good pal Sam Chaplin, 
who has never seen any of the main kind of uh, pop culture movie classics that we've all grown up with, all the Hollywood gold like, you know, Indiana Jones and Star Wars and Back to the Future and Ghostbusters. So each episode is me, um, you know, seeing what Sam knows about the movie, and then we watch the movie together and make hilarious observations. Okay. So we've got Planet <laughs> of the Apes episode coming out next week, which is one of oh. my favourite movies of all time. Dave, so that's going to be a Dave, real can fun. I just, can I just confirm I have seen all of those films before you try and bury me? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Mark's thing is he hasn't seen any of the TV shows, mate. Okay. Right. Ah, I see. Well, that, that's difficult because you can't just go away for a segue and watch an entire TV show and then come back and, and finish up nicely. That, yeah, that, that, just give me, give me five minutes and I'll watch Breaking Bad. I'll let you know my thoughts afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, I also host How To Wrestling, which is my earnest attempt at an educational podcast helping people get into the world of professional wrestling where i uh, alongside my partner joe look at different wrestlers topics areas of the world of wrestling and go through them and each episode we look at a specific kind of part of wrestling and try and educate the masses as well as the new people who are getting into wrestling helping people get their friends into wrestling because i like many have struggled greatly in the past to get people into wrestling so it's kind of a it's an educational podcast with that in mind was there any big when you when you got into the podcast and started doing the Attitude Air podcast? Was there, there any real podcast out there that kind of gave you the inspiration to start doing one? Because I know for me, um, I, I I in my previous guys doing a podcast years and years ago, it was uh, Kevin Smith's Modcast, and then kind of one of the podcasts that actually motivated me to start doing this was your own, uh, the Attitude Air podcast. When I started listening to that, I, I started getting a jonesing to start putting a microphone in front of my face again and subjecting people to my voice every week. Uh, but what were the big inspirations for you going forward or was it something you always had in the back of your head? I mean, it was something that I did have kind of in the back of my head because I've always done like, you know, radio shows and student radio and stuff. And mm. um, at the time um, we came up with the Atira podcast, I was listening to a lot of Art of Wrestling with Cole Cabana, yep. the Jim Cornette experience. It was kind of an explosion of a lot of wrestlers with podcasts, which kind of meant that I was listening to a whole lot um, things like OSW, uh, my shower broke, so I had to take baths, which I would watch <laughs> OSW episodes with. So I kind of started getting the idea because the... Um, it's, it's okay to say you just like baths, Kevin. You're amongst friends here. Oh, no, no. It, it's entirely... <laughs> I will never have a bath if I, if I can have my way. I just have to use the guise <laughs> of a, a broken shower and watching a wrestling show to, to you know, make up for that fact. But, um, yeah, I think Cole Cabana and Art of Wrestling was a real kind of big inspiration because I've been doing a lot of stand-up comedy... I met Cold actually at the uh, Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and I was quite, you know, inspired by his, you know, his hustle and his get up and go attitude. And I thought he made a real name for himself with podcasting. So mm. we had been doing some student radio in Lincoln, which was fucking abysmal. So we decided to, um, you know, try wrestling podcasts because we had, you know, realized our mate Billy hadn't seen any of the Attitude Era, and kind of the idea just sprung from there. You know, so that was kind of. That was what instigated the whole messy thing. Yeah, I think one of the, the things which um, like made actually appealing and certainly you follow on with How to Wrestling, like it's always interesting to get someone's perspective who's never watched any of it before because like there's a yeah. million people out there who just who lived through that era and then just kind of talk about it and, and whatever. But like like I I'm personally experiencing as well with my girlfriend at the moment. I've um, when I met her, I told her, yeah, I like wrestling, whatever. And the first response wasn't, okay, bye. It was, 
oh, cool, like, I'll sit down and watch some of that with you. And she saw Finn and Seth, and she was like, well, they're very handsy, and, and we were good to go. <laughs> um, but since then, she's, you know, slowly uh, developing an, an appreciation for um, some, some of the other wrestlers. Um, but it's always interesting, like, I get her perspective of things that I might have not thought about. And it's like the old kind of saying that, like, uh, a kid sees the world completely different to other people and gives, like, a kind of different perspective. Um like what going back and and watching all the shows with someone who'd never seen them before um like did you really feel that you was getting a, a different perspective that you might have not have gotten originally oh absolutely and i mean there was like a number of reasons why that kind of perspective really was uh, was interesting because you know with the attitude era which was you know people the common thing with people just complain saying oh wrestling's shit it used to be great when we were kids you know how everything was better when we were younger and more virile but you know everything was like <laughs> was centered around that everyone was going on like it was objectively better like people like kind of my brother who's older than me people who are kind of in their 30s were really perpetrating this like wrestling's bad now it was great then and i kind of knew that couldn't be true because like even watching some of the wwe documentaries and their tendency to change some of the facts and change some of the history it's like why are these guys trying to hide i'm pretty sure it wasn't as good as that you know as and i mean what always got me about it and the reason why i was so open to a new perspective is that you know if you're going to really stand up and say objectively something is amazing and i'm going on my experience from when i was nine and that is a really objective strong opinion you know that's like that's just ripe for having to hear what other people think about it. And I think it was one of the most eye-opening things ever was starting to watch these old shows with, you know, people who didn't think that they were immediately the most important thing ever. Cause you're sitting down and you're watching something from when you were younger and you're like, right in my head, this is the best thing ever. You know, you really have to kind of sit and go, well, nostalgia does play a huge factor. And even though I'm the biggest wrestling fan in the world, I'd be the first to admit that nostalgia plays a massive factor. I mean, we're, we're actually looking at stuff from 2011 at the moment on the ITR podcast. And somehow we've misremembered it and be like, oh, God, remember 2012? Remember how great it was? No, it wasn't. It was terrible. It was just nostalgic for a period in life, you know? So I'm watching with new fans. And I mean, it's a recurring theme in a lot of my podcasts. It's like, you know, yeah. do these things stand up with, with these new eyes? And very often it's, it's interesting to see because they often don't. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you say that the theme follows through, and it very much does follow through in, in the cinema swirl, where where you kind of uh, show Sam these these films because he's seen none, and it's incredible to hear a man who now works in, in a cinema, I believe, not really know a lot about cinema history, which is. But a... now he's qualified to work in the cinema. Before they Indeed. they took one look at his CV and they said no. Now they know he's seen Ghostbusters. He's allowed to work in the cinema. His his CV is just a URL directing to the podcast. <laughs> like, I've seen films now. Please let me work here. Um, but it's 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 been fantastic listening to Sam uh, kind of experiencing for the first time as an adult and getting to vocalize as an adult uh, experiences that for us are like the, the Saturday night movie on RTE2. We would have seen a lot of these growing up in Ireland uh, and the same probably for Mark growing up over in England. Uh he, it, it's interesting that uh, on a couple of times it seems like the podcast has teetered on Sam nearly ruining films from you for you by making you see them in an entirely new way and kind of bumming you out a bit. Yeah, no, that that has happened on a number of occasions. Um, I would say the two big ones which he was like underwhelmed by that just kind of like it left me kind of questioning my my own existence were. Indiana Jones, he was so underwhelmed by, like, and not in kind of like, a, I hate this movie, just kind of a, eh, 
You know, like it's I was yeah. I couldn't understand that. And Back to the Future as well was one which <laughs> yeah. I really just struggled with. But I mean, I do think genuinely when looking back at those movies, um, there is kind of like a peak time to see a lot of them. Yeah, and definitely. if you're not someone who's immediately got nostalgia for the 80s, and Sam doesn't because, you know, Sam's a kid of the 90s, as I am mm. myself. So if you don't have that inbuilt nostalgia for the 80s, a lot of those movies really don't live up a lot of the time. And it can be, like, quite shocking to see someone get, you know, underwhelmed by, you know, Ghostbusters yeah. or, or whatever it may be. It's kind of like re- wrestling is the same, where it, 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 I find with a lot of my, my friends who I would think have a lot of interests that would lend themselves naturally to enjoying a bit of the graps, that if they didn't watch it at that time when they were a kid, where the kind of looking at what was sort of real life superheroes in action, uh, if they didn't get into it then, it's it's exceedingly hard for them to get into it now uh, as an adult, um, which is great that you have a podcast like how to wrestling because that's exactly what you're trying to do is trying to educate people who are just coming to wrestling now because there is still there's a lot of bad stuff people you know on twitter and the like tend to focus on the bad stuff a lot but there's a lot of good stuff to enjoy uh with wrestling if you're just coming to it fresh oh yeah i mean i really really think it we're in like a golden age of wrestling that everyone's too busy complaining about to fucking realize like it's like it was so funny to see in like 2016 how the real world just went to shit but wrestling really picked its game up it was really great like it's kind of like, oh that's a really upsetting political development but oh man they're booking nxt very well this year aren't yeah. they like, oh that's very troubling political development but oh wow we saw a great show just down the road would you believe the caliber of independent yeah. wrestling these days so like it is like ending up with things like the network as well wwe being so conscious of its social media presence and like making a lot of great content i mean for new fans it's it really is it's it's the best time ever because it's like you've got instant access to everything from the past you could want to see in high quality very easy uh you know there's no more days of limewire or sending postal orders to get a dvd of an ecw show from a, you know over in England, and you know that just kind of that was what it was like trying to watch old wrestling when I was growing up. Now it's so easy, and the quality of wrestling at the moment is really, really great. And you know you're seeing like spectacular stuff, and that's really athletic, strong personalities. And yeah, it's too long sometimes, and you know the booking can be a bit annoying. But in terms of if you want to sit someone down and go, look, this is why I like wrestling, and this is what makes this a unique and fun spectacle. You can literally put on any of the big shows, you know, this year or last year, and people will be like, oh, yeah, I get that. It's quite a great time to get people into it. I still remember one of the first things I uh, I downloaded when I had LimeWire was uh, was like an MV ah. of uh, of ECW with uh, to the soundtrack of Down With The Sickness by Disturbed. And I was like, this is the fucking greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. And then the first time I actually saw some proper ECW was, I think it was like a late 2000 show where half the roster was gone. I was just like, this this isn't as good as that, that music montage that I watched. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I suppose it's probably time that we start talking about some video games. So uh, playing this week. Hey, check it out. I learned the baseline from Final Fantasy 2. Scott, you are the salt of the earth. Well, thank you. I meant scum of the earth. Thank you. Kevin, I believe you've been playing Yakuza 0, and I have seen a lot of videos of this game, and I still have no idea what is going on. Please, please enlighten me. 
Oh God, this game Yakuza Zero. I, I honestly thank you for letting me be on a podcast where I can just talk about how much I love Yakuza Zero and it not be weird. If I did it in the middle of a Royal Rumble review, it would seem a bit strange. Uh, to be fair, from but, everything I've seen about this game, it's still going to probably sound weird anyway. But please, yeah. by all means. <laughs> Um, Yakuza Zero is pretty much like if someone who was, uh, you know, setting it to make Shenmue and have that level of depth, but then just basically kind of got carried away and was not, you know, told, no, there's a story to tell here. Keep focused on this bit, and just went off and you know randomly made all these other mini games that were absurdly in depth. Yakuza Zero is the first Yakuza game I've played, and the general idea is you are a gangster in Osaka or Tokyo there are two main characters set in the 1980s you go around taking part in incredibly dramatic confrontations with other mobsters you usually fight people on the streets and then you go and you fill your time doing really weird shit like playing darts or running a cabaret club or buying property and watching it appreciate in value or going and playing RC car racing, or go watch women strip clothes off themselves, or go watch videos and see your guy masturbate, or go and ring up random people on a phone and talk to them, or go and just do any, whatever you want to do, you can go fish in the canal in Osaka, just because. It's a game that has probably 300 games within it. I have logged a shameful 80 hours on this game, and I've Oof. completed 20% of it. How is that even possible? <laughs> it's, it's madness. Every time I see something from it, I, I saw a video uh, of a character in the game. Uh, I don't know if you've gotten this far. I don't know where you are in the game, and I don't know what's going on at any point, so I don't know if I could judge well, you. I don't you told either, me and I've been playing it for hours and hours. I don't know what's going on. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, seen, I've, I've seen a character called Mr. Shakedown with giant arms that chases you and beats you up and money flies out of you. Yeah, um, so you, you come you come across money very slowly at the start of the game by beating people up and whatnot. But then when you get into the main characters, they've got side businesses like property and running the cabaret club. So you can get large quantities of money quite quickly then, which is great because you can upgrade your guy. But roaming the streets of Tokyo and Osaka are giant, muscular and fit men called Mr. Shakedown who've got hats and stuff. And they literally will beat the shit out of you. They're like the hardest guys in the game to beat. And then it's like, yeah, you got no money now. I made a billion yen with my cabaret club. And then I walked outside and the guy's like, yo, give me your money. And I couldn't beat him. So he took all my money. I wasn't prepared to fight. I was prepared to run girls. It's a, it's a weird game, though. And I think what the real strength of it is, is that it is such a simple game. I've never played the Yakuza game before now. But like, they've not changed the main gameplay of you know, button mashing, fighting, simple combos run around, beat guys up, special moves with weapons and stuff, that's all well and good. But the real joy of the game is the fact that it is so deep with these random side games. Like, for example, Joe, my partner, knew that I was obsessed with this game, and I was trying so hard to get it. And I finally got it, and I played through, you know, some of the fighting bits, and she's kind of like, yeah, that's fun, but it's not really for me, and she didn't enjoy it, so it became a game that I played on, on my own time. And then I started playing this cabaret club mini game where you have to like recruit all these different girls to be hostesses in your cabaret club to help your different clientele have a nice night. Some girls might be good at partying, some might be good at being romantic, some might, and it's a really weird little mini game. You have to do this kind of like diner dash thing where you have a you run the night in the club and you have to get the right girls to the right guys, and they have problems like we need to change the ashtray or this guy needs another drink because he has finished his. What are we going to do? And this little side mini game, Joe and I have played around 20 hours of alone the last few weeks. 
It is so <laughs> obsessively brilliant. And I just love that. I don't think I've ever played a game before where, you know, I don't like this main part of the game, but this little tiny side bit of the game is insanely amazing, and I love it. And I just keep finding these little parts of the game that I become obsessed with and then move on to something else. It's like, it's the biggest toy box of a game I think I've ever played. And I think value for money is something that I can definitely say Yakuza 0 is. These side games, because like when I think about um, when a game has like a core mechanic that it sticks to and then tries to add any other type of mechanic, it either usually implements it really, really poorly or it just goes for like a quick and easy, quick time event style option to mm. be able to make it yeah. work. Like Yeah, like like GTA has a lot of uh, side quests and side businesses and things like that, but it's it, the, the actual mechanics of doing it is, are very surface level. Yeah, like, does, does this feel... I mean, obviously, I'm guessing it doesn't feel like that much because you're enjoying the game so much, but, like, are, are there any of these side missions that feel like just kind of throw away, put a quick time event on it, and you're good to go? Or do they all feel like they have some level of kind of depth and content to them? Oh, no, there's a ridiculous level of depth to all of them, and I think that's kind of like what's so admirable about it. It's not kind of like, oh, we put loads and loads of time and an effort into like this particular mini game because we know this is the one that people will like. It's like they're literally all really deep games. You'll love some, you may not love others. I mean, like I love the bowling mini game, for instance, and it's a really great bowling game. That's because I used to play a bowling game on my PC way back in the day, and I just kind of love playing bowling games. The snooker game, again, is another incredibly deep, amazing game. I just don't particularly like snooker, so it's not for me. But, you know, I can see other people would like it. There is just a ridiculous level of of, uh, of effort that's put into all of these games. Like, the per- people making it thought that this was as important as the story, the voice acting, all these other things, which all have a huge level of effort and work put into them. So it's kind of... It's really amazing to see a game do so many things so well, and it's very rare that a game does that, particularly an open-world game, you know. I mean, I think the closest I've ever come to with a game that's had loads of little side bits that I enjoy is, like, Red Dead. I liked all the card games and stuff in Red Dead. But this has got that and then everything else in the world all crammed into one. It's fucking amazing. It's incredible. Uh, I think what we'll do here now is we'll say goodbye to Kevin for a little while uh, until we pop back up and talk about No Mercy later on in the show, because Lord knows the man does not want to get bogged down in internet drama like we're talking about in the news this week. So, Kevin, it's been a pleasure talking to you. We'll see you later in the show. See ya. Well, Mark Robinson, back in the studio here. My first bit of news for this week uh, isn't so much gaming news as much as it is uh, an update on a review of ours. Um, I have taken the Nintendo Switch on the road for the first time. Um, I went to Germany over the weekend to uh, Dusseldorf. Uh, I'll be talking a bit more about that trip next week on the show, probably. You weren't blown up, which is good. Wasn't blown up. Or uh, axed, or whatever. There was... There was two axe attacks, uh, a, an undiscovered World War Two bomb, um, a threat made at a shopping centre five minutes from us, and uh, an apartment raid for bomb-making supplies. <laughs> oh, and the body of a guy was found in a warehouse somewhere as well. 
And I don't know still if that's related or not. I it mean, was an eventful weekend, even outside of what I was doing it's there. It's all the elements you need for a good weekend, I feel. But we're here to talk about the Switch at the moment, the Nintendo Switch, which I've had now for just over a week. I had it just before last week's podcast, wasn't it? I think I had it. Yeah, literally a few days. If that yeah, was. so I've had a good while to play with it now. And really, as we talked about on the show, the real uh, the USP, the unique selling point of the Nintendo Switch, is its portability. It's a home console you can bring on the road. And we talked last week on the show about how um it, it does the performance downgrade slightly when you take it out of the dock but by and large it seemed like it would probably still be pretty good to bring on the road so uh, i have some some thoughts i've jotted down here over the weekend just to roll through and kind of give a, a nice update on on what i think of the switch at this point in time um the first thing is to point out the lies of nintendo's pr uh, because one thing you cannot do if you're behaving yourself is actually play a Switch the way they say you can play a Switch on an airplane. What do you mean? Because if you watch any of the promotional material when people are playing on an airplane, they're using the Joy-Con controller or, uh, like, as it, it's in the cradle. By what, sure, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Or they're playing with it, you know, with a little controller on its side in the uh-huh, plane. Uh-huh. This you cannot do. Because those controllers work on, I can't remember whether it's either Bluetooth or IR. And you have to put the, the switch, obviously, into flight mode when you're on a plane. Oh, and that course. kills all wireless connection, as it should do, because that's what flight mode is supposed to do. Ah. So, in reality, and it's not it's not a big problem actually playing it. But in terms of, they could have been a little bit clearer about that. Like, I know on some, particularly on transatlantic flights, you can turn your... IR and Bluetooth back on. So you, in theory, if you're on a long-haul flight, you could do that. On short-haul flights, you're not up in the air long enough and the the, bu- uh, the, not the buses, the planes, are not of the, the kind where this would not uh, be a problem. Yeah, so how are you, how are you having to play it then? Uh, tablet mode with the controller snapped to the snapped side. To so side. when they're okay. snapped to the side, they contact into the console and you're able to just play it like right. a giant sure. Vita, yeah. uh, for want of a better uh, analogy. But as you said last week, like that's still... A- it's a convenient way to play yeah it's, not... it's it, like it might be my second favorite way to play the thing after obviously the docked tv mode i haven't found a way that's completely uncomfortable to play that console yet and as i get on to i actually have played with an individual joy con as well playing one game this weekend but um just on the flight, playing it in tablet mode, it's cool because the screen is plenty big enough if you're holding it at the the distance you would be holding a, a handheld console in your hand. So the screen, it doesn't matter that the screen's a little bit on the small side for some people. When it's at that distance, you would need to be fucking blind for it to be a problem. <laughs> um, so, so that's pretty cool. Uh, the battery life, because it was a short haul flight... Held up really well. I think I played it for my entire flight, which was nearly well, the guts of two hours anyway, and I was only down to about sixty percent. Okay, that, that's battery. actually really good. Because when you knock it into flight mode, the battery lasts longer because it's yeah, not sure. constantly trying to connect to Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, or IR. Um, so it lasts a bit longer there. And this was me playing Zelda as well, which is apparently the most intensive on battery life of the existing Switch library games. I mean, when you think about what the library consists of. Yeah, indeed. But still, it's like, it's 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 pretty good that it, I didn't have to reach for them. Now, I have bought, and if you're someone who is going on long haul, medium to long haul flights, I would probably at this point say you might want to think about getting a power bank for it. 
Uh, the only thing that's annoying about that is that you already have a power bank for your phone. It's not really going to cut it because from what I understand, it's a, it's a fairly specific voltage of power bank that you need to put into it for it to charge effectively. Um, I, you you could probably get some power ba- all-purpose power banks that will charge it a bit, but maybe not very quickly. But, you know, it's it teach their own. For a short-haul flight, it was perfect for me. Um, what else do I have here? Um, Zelda remotely, uh, just playing it on the tablet, is fine. It's, as I talked about on the show last week, the the draw distance uh, is, is slightly worse off, which you would expect when it downgrades out of TV mode. Uh, but what it makes up for is frame rate. So I, I talked on the show last week about how if you are playing in TV mode because the performance is really trying to, to reach as high as it can, um, I you will notice some hitching taking place slightly um, when you're in um, wooded area or if there's a huge amount going on on the screen. It's usually any kind of like grasslanding games. Yes, yeah. what yeah. throws games off. Interestingly, um, I I'm house sitting at the moment. I'm only back to record this show, so I'm house sitting at the moment in my girlfriend's parents' house because they have dogs and I am the 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 de facto dog minder of the family. And um, their TV isn't a 1080p HD TV like we have. It's a 40-inch screen, but it's only 720p natively. Sure. So uh, to make sure that the image actually fits in the box and isn't stretched vertically, uh, I had to go into the video settings on both my PS4 and on my Switch and downgrade them to 720p as standard. Uh, a locked 720p rather than automatic scaling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and funnily enough, I have not noticed any of the frame rate issues since I did that, even in TV um, mode, that, that which is probably sense. expected. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I suppose as a short fix until they, if it really properly annoys you um, as a short term fix, you could probably do that. But playing it on the tablet is fantastic. And um, it, it's really awesome getting to play a Zelda game that big on a, a device that small. And the device as well, even if you're playing it for ages and ages, doesn't get that warm. Um, like, it gets lukewarm, but uh, the vent is on the top of the thing where your fingers will never be if you're playing it. And it's not anywhere near um, the bottom where it would be standing on a table if it was in tablet mode with the kickstand out. Uh, so it doesn't get heated up. The only way to get heated up is if you have stupid settings on for sleep mode where it stays on unless you're touching it for hours and you put it into a case. Then uh, Jeff Gersman was talking about this on Giant Bomb this week. He accidentally knocked the thing on when it was in his travel case and he, he whatever his sleep settings are, it doesn't knock off for a long time. So by the time he took the thing out of his case, the... Uh, the, the case, let alone the console, was piping hot. Oh, really? Yeah, because oh it just being inside, there's nowhere for the Sh- heat to go. go. Sure, yeah. You know, it's like putting a big woolly jumper on the fucking thing. Um, so that, that's a thing to be keeping an eye on. Um, the kickstand uh, that Polygon buried in their tech review of it is excellent. The only way the, the kickstand is ever coming out of that thing is if you are smashing down on top of it with a good bit of force trying to break the kickstand out. In which case, Nintendo got your back because it's a thing that's designed to pop out so that you don't put so much pressure on it that it permanently breaks the kickstand. So the kickstand will pop out and easily reattaches into it. Let's let's be fair here. Nintendo, they kind of know what they're doing. Uh-huh. Uh, speaking of which, the Joy-Con grips, um, sliding them into the rails uh, has panicked a few people. Because sometimes they can be 
a bit difficult to get off if you have put the wrong one on. So the thing you need to keep an eye out for, because I had to go look it up online, it might have been in the manual. <laughs> just, I don't know where the manual is now, it's just boxed away somewhere. Um, so I went and Googled it. So if you see on the Joy-Con grip a plus, line that up with the plus button. If you see a minus, line it up with the minus button. That way you'll definitely have them on right. Slide them onto the rails like you were sliding them onto the side of the console. Hit, there's a little lock switch at the bottom. And then it's fine. And it's cool because as we said before on the show, those uh, Joy-Con grips, as well as having a wrist strap if you were playing something like 1-2 Switch, also beef out the shoulder buttons because the shoulder buttons otherwise are dug into the rails and it doesn't feel very natural. But you bump it out and it actually, the best way I can describe it to you without actually doing it here and now, is it feels like you're holding a small SNES controller. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, it is basically that shape, but it's just wee. Um, I played with the right Joy-Con when myself and our friend of the show, Ian, were playing uh, a couple of games that I'll talk about in a second. Um, And it was my first time playing with just one Joy-Con sideways oriented. And uh, the things I have to say about that, uh, after a few minutes, the issue of the right Joy-Con, you know, some people said it's unnatural because the stick is actually in the middle of that controller. After a few minutes of kind of just wiring your brain to think like that, it's fine. Um, it d- didn't really bother me at all. Um, the thing that kind of fucked with my brain a little bit is that obviously when you turn the controller around, the orientation of what the face buttons are changes. So A doesn't stay A. A moves to where A would be. You know what I mean? Yeah. If, when you turn the controller 90 degrees. So it's still in the same position directionally. But it's just... Obviously, if it says A on it, it's not A anymore when it's turned around. That's, that fucked up my head a little bit. <laughs> I kept accidentally hitting pause and stuff like that. Um, because where I was expecting the, the Y button to be is actually kind of... It's a bit... I was going a bit too high up and I kept it in the plus button. Yeah, that, that's and, a thing that um, developers are going to have to think about, though. You know, if yeah. they make a game where you have multiple ways of playing it with the, yeah. the Joy-Cons... Yeah. Um, they're going to have to be very clear in the design and in, in the UI. Mm. Like, look, this is if you're having it this way, this is how you need to have the buttons. Mm. Um, that that is one of the things I could see being a headache. Yeah, although I don't see. I think it'd be kind of like the you know the the Wii U. You could use the Pro Controller, or you could use a tablet, or you could use the Wii Motes. Uh, but it wasn't really anybody except Nintendo First Party that were capitalizing on all three modes of playing, and I imagine it's going to be somewhat similar here, with the exception of the likes of like the the two K games and FIFA. Yeah. So I I I I'd say for the most part that's not going to be a hassle to to people developing. But I I I don't know. Like it depends on what people want to do when they're de- developing games for that system. Uh, the final two things I want to talk about are um. Fast Racing Remix, Fast Fast RMX, which is an excellent game, excellent single player, excellent multiplayer. The one thing I will recommend that you do not do is play that game in multiplayer split screen in tablet mode because there is a hell of a lot going on in that game and you need to see up ahead of you. <coughs> now, like, the, the tablet screen is... is- you know, pretty big for a single person to play single player. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. It's... you're showing it to me now. The idea of having that in split screen is fucking madness. Half that screen, like it's about the size of a Game Boy screen. Now, because <laughs> um, that game runs in in 60 fps, uh-huh. and like the the Digital Foundry uh, episode on uh, Fast Dynamics is really really good, mm-hmm. um, and they just talk about how just how good that game looks. Yeah. Is there any 
any noticeable slowdown or anything at all in split screen. Nope, there's no slowdown, regrettably. Jesus Christ. But it's the, What happens is the, the draw distance, mostly because of how small your split screen is, it becomes it becomes nearly impossible to... So part of that game is being able to see what colour-coded boost strip is up ahead of you. Yeah. So you can change the jet on the back sure. of your car so that it boosts you and doesn't slow you down for getting it wrong. Uh, it becomes very hard to see what colour is next uh, because you are travelling so goddamn fast and it just feels like the colour is jumping up on you. Um, so that, so that, that's one way to make a difficult game even more difficult. Yeah, it's still very... And it, yeah, it is a very difficult game. It's a very, very difficult racing game. Um, it's still very playable in single player and tablet mode, but multiplayer is it's it's very tough. I wouldn't recommend it. Like you could still have a bit of a laugh about how shit everyone is because it kind of levels the playing field in that sort of way that everybody is really terrible. I, at. I get the feeling that uh, the kind of multiplayer games you're gonna want for that is like single screen. Um, well, just everything on the, is on every player is on the screen at the yeah, same like time. Yeah, like a, like a FIFA game where everyone's looking at the uh, same yeah, camera. There's like no NBA need to... Jam. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah something like that. Um, the other game that we played was Snipperclips, which is fucking awesome. Yeah, tell me about Snipperclips, because I've not seen any footage of it, I've only heard from other people. Okay, so it's it's only about 15 quid, or maybe even 14 quid on the shop, and it's probably, like, I think, apart from Zelda, it's the one I'd thoroughly recommend everyone gets with their Switch, because it is the, the one game where it really utilizes each individual Joy-Con, and makes, in your head, it makes sense when you're doing it this way. So, you play as two little paper shapes... You and Player 2. It's a cooperative game. There's no single player. The whole point of it is that it's cooperative and teaching people how to use those controllers. Any online multiplayer or just local? Um, I don't think there's online, but I wasn't looking for it because it was in flight mode. Um, or no, it wasn't in flight mode. Um, no, I just didn't look for it. it was, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I, don't, I don't know why I didn't look for it, but I didn't. Right, I will enough. come back later next week if okay. I, if, if I cool. find some. Right. But... Um, it it'll be hard to without because without voice chat at the moment and because it, what it is is you have one button the A button is to uh, clip and the B button you hold it down to regenerate your shape so you're kind of like a, a bell shape almost or like a Pac-Man ghost shape except flat at the bottom instead of having the the kind mm-hmm. of the squiggles and um, if you overlap with the other shape and press A you cut them you cut a shape the shape you've you've walked into out of them and they can do the same vice versa for you and it's a puzzle game where you have to either get from one end to the other or you have to get sometimes um like a firefly into a light bulb or sometimes you have to get uh one of the really 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 frustrating difficult ones is uh when you control a bunch of shapes of the same color on the map and an egg will drop down out of a pipe and you have to try and work together to shift the egg all the way across to the end point without dropping it um so you work cooperatively you either you figure out between you what you need to do to to sort out the situation and it's all about a conversation between you and the other player going right I need you to cut this shape out of me and you need to get this shape cut out of you now you stand here you use the shoulder buttons to rotate your shape around so that you can make the shape into like sometimes there will be a puzzle that needs you to make a ramp to get something up uh, sometimes you will need, you will have a puzzle where you need to get cut into kind of a long narrow shape because you need to press a button that's hidden in a corner uh, and stuff like that. So it's it's all about the cooperative is the key here. It's all about having a, a conversation with the other player and trying to solve the puzzle, uh, and then doing it. 
Um, it's a really cool little game. Um, I don't know how much there is to it. Myself and Ian got through about 20 puzzles, and it seems like there's a good lot left. I don't know how many, so I don't want to, to outright say here. Um, some of them are really easy, and it, uh, some of them are really difficult, and it's got that really cool puzzle game um, feel of when you finally solve it, you feel like you're invincible. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and also it's got the maddening thing of making you feel like an utter idiot and it's got a lot of the the music to it and the the animation going on with your shapes and the little eyeballs on them and stuff like that is really really charming um it's a it's a really nice kid-friendly game Uh, it's 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 one of those games for all the family sort of because there's definitely enough maddening puzzles in there that the adults are will be satisfied with the challenge it's not just that i'm sort of some sort of idiot man who can't solve the children's puzzles um yeah strong review for snipper clips i think that the the trio of Zelda Fast Remix and Snipper Clips are probably the three must haves on Switch at the moment. Now I haven't played Bomberman, but uh, I've heard the, the multiplayer. Like I've heard the multiplayer on Bomberman is top notch. Yeah, and that that's what I'm thinking they probably want to aim for there for Bomberman. Yeah. So. so the first time Bomberman drops significantly in price, I'll, I'll probably it's, pick yeah, that it's up. It's far too expensive. Yeah, it's it's fifty quid, which is still less expensive than everything. Like uh, than the than the big physical releases, with the exception of it's the same price as One Two Switch, which we will play by the next episode because I need to f- find out what that game is. <laughs> I have seen I have seen so much of it being played, and yeah, have yet to sit down and play it. So so we, we'll get to that. Uh, moving on to the actual news. Um, so Nintendo Switch sales are doing really well at the moment. Indeed. Um, so it looks like in the opening week or two, uh, the Nintendo Switch has sold 1.5 million consoles worldwide, uh, which is really cool because that would mean in two weeks they have come up to, I think, their estimate for the year was about 2, two million. million. Yeah. yeah. So they have um, finally booked the trend. The, the Wii... The original Wii was the only outlier in this, but since the SNES, uh, Nintendo have had negative returns. So every console has sold less than its predecessor, uh, with the exception of the the Wii. I mean, this to be fair, home consoles. To be fair, with like the the Wii U, it, that was very much the kind of bottom of the barrel. Like you could only start going up yeah. after so, that. So like N sixty four sold substantially less than the the SNES. Uh, GameCube sold less than the N64. We booked the trend and Wii U was completely in the toilet. Um, So yeah, that's really strong. Uh, It'll give Nintendo a bit of confidence. Um, I'm hoping that if they can exceed expectations for this year, and to be honest, it sounds from a lot of retailers that this probably would have gone past the 2 million mark by now, or not for the fact that most places in in the Western Hemisphere are sold out of the thing. Well, they have said that um, most retailer, retailers have said that they are getting new shipments in within the next couple of yeah, weeks. Yeah, yeah. By the end of March, there will be a new shipment. So I wouldn't be surprised to hear by the middle of April that we're up past the 2 million mark. And I'm really hoping that if that if this thing can keep exceeding expectations by the end of the year, have, say, a 5 million user um, base, which I think the addition of... Um, the addition of... Splatoon 2... Uh, Super Mario and a few other things yeah, um, uh, coming out I I think that's going to help because uh, by the sounds of it they they talked about the the attach rate for uh, Zelda has been 89% so 89% of people who bought a Switch 
have bought Zelda and the absolute and utter madness of the other 11% <laughs> that have bought it for Just Dance or Skylanders is insane to me because look, we look, have look. what might end up being the game of the generation and you've gone, you know what, nah. Look, those people exist. Um, yeah, when yeah. is the, the Scorpio projected for? I can't... Uh, holiday. Holiday. Yeah, so, so I would guess November to give people enough time to get it in for Santi. That's going to be interesting to see the uh, the, the marketing decisions well, by here's both the thing, Nintendo though, and see, Microsoft. To me, two different audiences, because I don't think the kids care as much about the high-performance Xbox. Perhaps. There will be some, obviously. There's always Perhaps, some. exactly. Um, still, I still think it's going to be interesting. Because yeah, it's going to be interesting. I, I think... I mean, yeah, obviously the the market is always more between Sony and Microsoft. Yeah. But there could be, I'd say there's more potential for people that would want to buy a Switch than a Xbox than people that would want to buy an Xbox over a Switch. Mm. Um, So I think that just, you know, that'll come down to pricing and... Uh, My one thing as well, well, yeah, is that is when it comes to the holiday season, what game is coming out on Scorpio? Well, here's the thing I was going to say. I would already argue that there's already uh, more... um, home like uh sorry what was the words i'm looking for um exclusive uh console um games that there are more kind of necessary ones for the switch already than there yeah. are for microsoft yeah, yeah, and yeah. xbox and by the end of the year again you've got mario kart splatoon and like literally around christmas time super mario odyssey is coming out yeah and, and that, like, that's gonna that's gonna own mario games always sell exactly. incredibly and well microsoft, even the bad ones microsoft have Cuphead, which will probably get delayed for a fifth time. But, is that a, like again? It's if you're PC. talking about if you're talking about because we know that the main the main uh, audience that the Switch and the Scorpio will be competing for are the younger ones. Yeah. To me, Cuphead is not on their radar. No, it's not. Um. So, or I'm just trying to think of something because it's that. Yeah, it's Crackdown, Crackdown Three, and Forza. Yeah. That's um, it. Anything else? Pretty much, you can get on PS4. Uh, and even in the fall, you'll have some version. I don't know what it's going to look like, but you will have FIFA, um, which is one of the big ones as well. Like the, I suppose you know, for the not young young kids, but for the the kind of tweens, Call of Duty isn't coming out on on Switch. So, no, no, no. Um, there's that and Assassin's no, Creed for, as well. For, but... for that, you know, subset of people, um, yeah. They already exist. They probably already have... I imagine most of them already have a PS4, to be fair. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Particularly with the older ones who would actually care about exclusives like um, Cuphead or would actually want to play Call of Duty or Assassin's Creed. I'm looking at the likelihood that they're looking at the Xbox One Scorpio versus the Switch not as their first console because they already own one of the consoles. And the people that are keeping up to date on stuff like that didn't wait this long to wait into this generation. So... Um, I think all things are looking relatively good for Nintendo at the moment. I think they the one thing they need to hop on is their PR based around the customer service with the the left Joy-Con issue and the scratch uh, the dead pixels. Yeah, I think they need to, to get on that shit because that's the only thing that's really holding them back at the moment from uh, batting a thousand here on this because people are really really loving the Switch and the form factor of it, and it, it has turned out to be the case of what I had suspected before the console came out is that the uh, the jack of all trades console that it is only really makes sense when you get it in your hands once you get it in your hands it and you play the games that utilize the different functionality it all starts to click in your head yeah, and you realize this is actually an incredible piece of kit it's kind of the same with vr really like i mean yeah. with with switch you can obviously oh, you can see more yeah. like on screen what's going on but in terms yeah. of 
the 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 experience of it it very much is you kind of have to have it in your hands and really yeah, see I'm, I'm sure there's a distinct possibility that vr could one day win me over but it, just the the price points I, I there's not a chance and with sure. all the so so uh talk about how psvr is to actually play yeah um i'm, I'm, I'm not and they don't have a breath of the wild yeah um moving on anyway away from the switch it feels like we've been switch cast the last few weeks um Mark, there's been a lot of silly sausages on the internet this week, and uh, this week, <laughs> we've, yeah, and we we've both kind of agreed here that we're not going to get too into the weeds on this, but because it kind of affects uh, games media, the games enthusiast press, that sort of uh, corner of the gaming industry, Look, it has it, to be addressed. It has to be addressed. So we're going to hit. There's, there's three stories here um, that all have a similar thing of making people really angry. Uh, two justified, one not so justified. Uh, so let's get to it. John Tron, who is, uh, you will know, uh, formerly of Game, Grum- Game Grums and uh, still uh, a founder and I think like still in the business at Normal Boots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who He's runs still... uh, Normal Boots. I, uh, for me, uh, the, the two programs I watch in there, I watch The Completionist and I watch Did You Know Gaming. Both are under the Normal Boots banner. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, he's very successful within that area. And yeah. I will, you know, and I've said to, and a lot of people have agreed with, with this week on Twitter, like, his actual video content, he to does have uh, similar tropes to a lot of the other gaming YouTubers where there's there's the shouting and the screaming and there's mm-hmm. the kind of quick cuts. But he's some been of the doing it longer than most of them. That A, yeah, he's been doing it since like I fucking started watching YouTube. But yeah. B, he's also pretty good at uh, kind of like satire. Like he has one particular video about Sonic um, yeah. that I very much enjoy to this day. Yeah. And uh, he's he's very good at that. But yeah. So he's a guy who has a had, uh, shall we say, uh, a colourful series of uh, personal beliefs that have come to the, kind of bubbled up a couple of times before, and uh, he's becoming more and more of a niche figure. And was a guy who, the the first time I had encountered that this guy wasn't so on the level, and we're not going to get into a big debate on this, was uh, his involvement with the whole GamerGate situation mm-hmm. and his his outspoken and, in my view, incorrect views. <laughs> Uh, on things there outed himself as a bit of a shithead to some people um this guy his real name is john jafari uh, he's only 26 still yeah which is quite incredible madness um he tangled with twitter followers on sunday this is from a story in polygon uh and then dug deeper in a live stream debate about nationalism ethnicity and immigration his comments revealed wide-ranging right-wing sympathies that appear to have blindsided many of his viewers who clearly weren't paying attention to the man uh, some of whom have withdrawn their youtube subscriptions uh jafari is the, the founder of uh normal boots which i already talked about so um he where am I looking for? It all began on Sunday when Jafari tweeted a defense of U.S. Representative Steve King, Republican from Iowa. Uh, King, supporting the Dutch far-right politi- politician Gert Wilders, said, We can't restore our civilization with someone else's babies, which is a very classy thing to say. Mm-hmm. Well done, you. Uh, basically endorsing the idea of nations as singularly ethnic states. Jafari, apparently unsolicited for his opinion, said the following. Wow, how scandalous. Steve King doesn't want his country to be invaded by people who have contempt for his culture and people Nazi. Uh, he dug in yesterday. Uh, this was the, the day after this. Uh, with Twitch streamer Stephen Bunnell II, also called uh, Destiny, in a two-hour argument in which Jafari referenced long-held far right-wing talking points such as a Mexican Reconquista, which for those of you who don't know is the idea that Mexico are slowly, by means of mass immigration, starting to reclaim the southern United States of America, which is mental. 
uh, and the claim that even this is this was the 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 crowning moment of this uh, that wealthy blacks in the United States commit more crimes yeah, than poor white people. This fucking one. <sighs> Uh, how any of this would be relevant to Jafari's normal subjects, which have amassed him 3.1 million followers on his own channel, is unclear. <laughs> his defenders have complained that the reporting of Jafari's unsolicited Twitter comments and the remarks from his entirely willing two-hour appearance on Bunnell's livestream amount to thought policing, character assassination, censorship, or all three. Um, I mean, he's read it's been set on fire, essentially. Yeah. Um, um, just to kind of sum it up here, like, it's funny that everybody went crazy after PewDiePie even though the problem with PewDiePie was that context was key there that a lot of things were taken completely out of context with him and he he was vilified and lost a substantial amount of money because of it now he by correct to a degree but he hasn't helped himself with follow-ups to no, that original but funnily enough one of his his first initial follow-up was perfect and if he'd never spoken about it again yeah then that'd be fine but yeah the the fact that now he's going in uh, going kind of he's doubling down bound. on it yeah. to try and taunt them Which in to keep going at him it's not gonna work it, it's admirable from one perspective because it's like he knows that he had the right he was on the right side of this argument at the start, but yeah, again, it's um, that would not be my decision. That's not where I would go yeah. with it. But uh, in the case of this guy, it's not a case of context, but Lord, because Lord knows John Tron was willing to uh, volunteer all the context that you were looking for, uh-huh. um, it just appears that this man is a bit of a racist shithead. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> just so something all up in a nice little package. Like, it's and I was talking to you earlier about this. Like, and as people pointed out, it's amazing some of his views, considering he is half Iranian, half yeah. um, Hungarian, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's uh, in, even if you just go with like what's tone deaf. Even if you At just go with tone deaf. half Iranian, considering Iran were one of the countries subject to uh, Trump's uh, travel ban. Yeah, like it, like that. In itself, if you cannot see that, if you cannot have the self-awareness to see the things that you're saying yeah. uh, in relation to that, you just shrug emoji. In a not-related story, but also uh, internet drama, Colin Moriarty, who's a guy we've referenced on the show before, and for the sake of context, uh, Colin Moriarty uh, was a guy who was at IGN, and I really admired his games writing at the time. Um, I would urge people still, in light of the things we're about to discuss, to look up. He he has done some excellent pieces, particularly long-form, five-part story on the history of Naughty Dog Studios. When that guy was given a task and was writing exclusively about games, he was a fascinating intellect to kind of uh, engage with on video games. The problem is, himself, Greg Miller, uh, Tim Geddes, and Nick Scarpino broke away two years ago to form Kind of Funny, which are kind of... Um, they would be classed less as a games outlet because games is only half of what they do. So it's a games enthusiast press. They don't really review games anymore. They give impressions. They talk about games. They play games. They have games podcasts, but they aren't strictly uh, like a standard outlet like we would think of, say, a Kotaku, Destructoid, Giant Bomb, GameSpot, IGN, any Mm -hmm, of those. mm -hmm. Um, And the problem is that now he has the creative freedom that he doesn't have to just talk about games all the time so I've noticed and we've talked about this privately but not necessarily on the show that over the course of maybe the last year or so he started to veer more and more into because he is he is unashamed about it that he is a Republican and that that is fine if that is your your political view that's whatever way Uh you choose to move through the world that is fine he is more than entitled to that but um, what he has become uh, over the last year or so I've noticed is that he, he gets into situations where he will deliberately try to bait people on Twitter 
um, with things that, that sometimes they seem like things you would believe. Sometimes they would sing, seem like things they aren't. He just likes making people mad and being like a lightning rod for controversy, like a lot of the the conservative media that he enjoys. Uh, Summing him up probably uh, in one sentence is that I I do know for a fact because he talks about it a lot that he reads Breitbart. See, that in itself. That will tell you. So what happened over the weekend was that last Wednesday, wasn't it, International Women's Day, uh, Colin fired out a tweet. Um, There was a hashtag going around saying a day without a woman that was supposed to mark um, a day of remembrance on International Women's Day for how significant women are in our lives that imagine what it would be like without women around. Uh, it was very somber, very kind of um, a very nice, touching way to realize that women are much more important than some people would give them credit for. He tweeted out under the hashtag David Out a Woman the phrase, ah, peace and quiet. Um, now, just from the context of having watched the man's content for the better part of a decade now, I don't, I could be wrong. I have never known him to be overtly sexist like this tweet was this does not excuse this tweet in any way this tweet in isolation is a sexist thing even if it is a joke um the problem with it really in terms of why it's relevant and why we're talking about it now is that it blows back on his business kind of funny which is a games enthusiast outlet and because he's one of the four kind of personalities and founders of that website anything he said is basically taken as a de facto statement from one of the guys from this website sure as a horrible piece of shit thing to say even if you were joking but um, the fact that now you are basically speaking on behalf of people um, you work with, who you're in business with, is really, really shit. And he dug his heels in and uh, refused to uh, apologize or to say that he didn't speak on behalf of the other people. Again, he uh, doubled down. Yeah, we saw some damage control coming out of Kind of Funny where Greg released a statement because Greg is always a very PR conscious guy and, you know, would be on top of his social media so would know that this firestorm was starting laid out pretty much a conclusive statement saying Colin is allowed to say what he wants to say which is technically true Mm -hmm. Um, we do not agree with him in any way shape or form Um, because of the the tirade that had that this had started uh, Colin wasn't going to they were supposed to make an appearance at PAX East this weekend Colin cancelled it Um, Tim Geddes as well had a tweet saying that the people that were supporting that statement and getting really angry about uh, people not being able to make sexist jokes, that those weren't the kind of fans he wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, over the weekend, there, there seemed to be, because I, I watched their live stream on Monday where they broke all this down and uh, they seemed to have really crisis talks. And what came out is that Colin Moriarty had been planning to leave Kind of Funny for a while because he wanted to get more into politics and less into gaming. But based on the resources they had at the time of Kind of Funny, even though they would have let him do that, um, it would have taken too many resources away from the stuff they were doing that was actually generating their revenue that they just couldn't logistically do it. So he was going to strike out on his own at some point when something came up later in this year. But because this got so bad over the weekend, um, the, the this was all over every website that deals with the games industry. You were seeing this, like even people that don't normally talk about YouTube or social media drama were all over this shit. Um, that Monday morning, effective immediately, he resigned from Kind of Funny. Um, and it's kind of interesting because uh, there wasn't that much of an effect on their subscriber counts or the money they were making in on Patreon. 
during the period in between the joke and the resignation, the only negative impact has come since the resignation. So there's obviously a lot of people unhappy because there, even though they did a live stream going, look, we support Colin, we don't agree with what he's saying, but he's our friend. Uh, there is a perception among people, uh, pretty incorrectly, I would say, that they stabbed him in the back. Yeah, because well, we had this a couple of weeks ago after the PewDiePie thing, because Jack Septicai came out and he said, look, mm. well, he, he had his thoughts on the whole situation. And yeah. so a bunch of people like went at him and said, how come you haven't got... Uh, Felix is back, you know, he made you. And it's like, look, just because you are friends with someone, you do not have to agree with them. And certainly from the business perspective here as well, like this is going to have a a negative effect on them as a PR, you know, from a PR perspective. Um, you you can't you can't work with that you know yeah. you can't Col- have that yeah Colin did the right thing resigning Colin did the right thing if he wanted to be a political lightning rod that he was considering moving away anyway like he's appeared on the Rubin Report and on Glenn Beck's radio show in recent weeks which by the sounds of it from what they were saying on Monday was the start of him lining up kind of hey people in the conservative media start thinking about Colin Moriarty for a job um, and he stepped away at the right time because he knew even though he didn't feel he said anything wrong I again do I'm not this I'm I'm trying to explain but I'm not trying to defend I think it was a horrible piece of shit thing to say and I would have been furious say if we were in those shoes and you had said it and you yeah. would have been furious if we were in those shoes and I had said it because it's yeah. a fucking horrible thing to exactly. say exactly right um, and I think as well from from Greg, Tim and Nick, they did the best job they could do under very fraught circumstances to do damage control before they were ready to announce the resignation and uh, kind of to do right by their business by allowing him to resign and not persuading him to stay and weather the storm. Uh, I think they've done well here. Now, my concern with all of this is, um, and so uh, Patrick Klebic had a good article up today on Waypoint talking about you know, he's young uh, daughter when she comes of age yeah. and starts watching stuff like YouTube and people like John Tron and, mm. and the the effect that can have and yeah. like what is the right way to, to police them in, in telling them like yeah. you know, is this what you should be watching? Yeah. Um and trying to instill kind of moral values and whatnot. Yeah. You know, Moriarty clearly has his own sort of dedicated fan page within Kind of Funny. And, yeah. you know, we've and, seen that from the people that yeah. have And in the past, when he was just talking about broad political history, because he's a very intelligent guy. Yeah. So, and that's what makes it so ultimately disappointing that he that doesn't realise the error of his ways here. But, like, I really liked sometimes when he talked about politics because he comes from a different viewpoint than me. And I think that is important for children, that part of it. Yeah. Uh, to have someone who challenges your views because I would be the furthest thing from a conservative you could get especially by the American definition of a conservative mm-hmm. um, and I always found it interesting that he rather than shouting people down would always try to explain why the, the anti-federalist stance of the Republican Party is the is the way to go as far as he's concerned and things like that when it, it stops at the water's edge though because when you get into things like this even though in his own head, he's not saying it maliciously or as a joke. It still is a reflection on you that you think this is a cool joke to make or a funny joke to make, uh, especially on the day of yeah. International Women's Day using the, the hashtag. And, and extend on that as well, like, you know, um, people saying that it's it's good to have healthy debate. And it's like, yes, yes. and as you kind of said there with, with some of his views, but... Uh, racism and sexism and yeah. fascism. Which, by the way, again, like let it, just for people, don't get it confused in your head. This is just sexism with him. There is nothing even approaching racism. No, 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 no. 
haven't used people that aren't following. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't used the broader spectrum here because there are people then defending, saying, "Well, you know, people should be given a platform to be able to give that point of view." And it's like, yeah. no, no, you're not understanding here because you because of the First Amendment doesn't give you the right. Or we don't have to accept. That... It gives me the right to tell you to shut the fuck up exactly. as well, you know. Yeah. Um, and and that's that's a frustrating thing yeah. when you're seeing people on Twitter and in comments or whatever, because that's the thing that they go to, and they mm. clearly don't understand the fundamental yeah. principle and moral values of just not being the a thing... shite hawk. Yeah, the thing I worry about, and I think this is going to be good long term for kind of funny because they can rededicate themselves to game because games because Colin was pulling them off in an entirely political direction on their game over Greggy uh, show. Uh, look, here's like the that, thing, cause... which is fine. In in doses like waypoint had their own kind of specific episode about yeah. this not too long ago after uh, trump was um, yeah. uh, signed in but and like it, it's that, grand to have doses of that but when something that i'm signing up to like i'm subscribed to their stuff on youtube i'm subscribing for like games and pop culture and i like politics and i consume politics from a lot of different fronts and when it starts pervading this too much is when i was just kind of like getting tired of it so i think long term this is better for kind of funny as hard as it is for them now and as hard it may be for Collins fans I just worry because since his resignation is when it's actually negatively impacted them so since Monday this is Wednesday that we're recording this so since Monday they've dropped over 1700 subscribers on YouTube they have lost 769 patrons on Patreon and that equates to a loss of over $1900 a month Mm. to them now they're still one of if not the leading patron on Patreon if you add their two Patreon accounts together they're still raking in a lot of money Um, but I hope everyone gives the, the the, the remaining guys a chance and not let everything be tainted by the situation that happened this weekend with no um, I, I think the ones that have dragged away were uh, I would imagine for the most part people that were on the side of Moriarty and yeah. on that stance have moved away not because of the what it means in the bigger picture for kind of funny no I I, I do think their content is gonna and this isn't a reflection on me thinking Colin was boring or anything like that but I think without him trying to pull everything in an overtly political direction all the time I think kind of funny stuff actually has a lot of room to grow and become really fun uh, or at least much more fun than it, than it already is um, the final one that I want to talk about and then we'll we'll do a quick fire round of news stories to sum up uh, is Jim Sterling Jim fucking Sterling's son one of you want to talk about a guy who I will fucking I will nail my flag to his ship man uh, Jim Sterling is one of the guys in games media that I respect so so much for all the shit he's had to put up with for all the things he does for gamer and consumer advocacy um, and just for making top-notch content uh, all the time. And just think as well, he'd not been out of that fucking court case for five minutes. Yeah, so Jim Sterling reviewed Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, a game that I'm a big fan of, uh, a game most people are big fans of, uh, and he gave it a seven. He did. And uh, as a result, uh, a massive shitstorm has ensued. People have been trying to DDoS his website. His website was briefly down La- uh, in the last few days they are trying to dox him they're trying to do all sorts of things and abuse him and the reason for this and it's the most hysterical reason if you haven't been following this story listeners at home is that because he gave the game a 7 which is still a good score like it's not a bad score let's all because I, I read one comment that goes oh like a 7 is now because all games get 8s and 9s and 10s so a 7 is the new bad it's reviewers code for bad it's like do you know what's code for bad bad because games also still get 1s and 2s all the time he gave it a 7 out of 10 and because of that 
Breath of the Wild on Metacritic dropped from 98 to 97. It dropped to, I think, the seventh highest rated game of all time. Oh no! The poor fucking piss baby. Here's the thing, right? Um, So there's a guy um, called uh, John Denson, who is uh, an English journalist. Uh, He's currently freelance at the moment. He has a YouTube series called State of Play. And he made some really good points that... um, he fully uh, accepts and respects um, Sterling's choice to give this a 7 out of 10 game. You know, he's not finished it yet, so he can't fully agree. Yeah. Um, and he agrees that, you know, the points that Sterling makes in his review are well-rounded and, and you know, there is fault and critique put in there. But he also can't help but come to the conclusion as well that Sterling knows what he's doing here. You know, even if he fully 100%, and I, you know, I would... 100% back him in his belief that he thinks that this game is a 7 out of 10 yeah. and he gives perfectly valid reasons why but there is the feeling as well that he knows what he's doing by giving this game 7 out of 10 and what comes with the the, the, the attention that comes with giving this game 7 out of yeah, 10 I, yeah, I don't necessarily but yeah. at least the thing and it's not even like there's a short term game for it because as he says himself his website does not earn any money it's ad free yeah um you know all his content on youtube is ad free exactly um you know clicks do not help him no it's all on patreon yeah so short term there's no real gain here it's all like a long-term potentially long-term kind of gain from here so i not saying that is it like you know it could be five percent of why that game got seven out of ten but i do feel that there is there in the background I, I would disagree with that based on the, the just having one read his review and two watch the subsequent Jimquisition on it. And for me, the things he, are talk, he is talking about are all very real things that are in Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild and are things that if you don't like them will just make it a good game and not a great game. The thing he goes on about most is weapon durability, which again, is an issue that pervades the entire I, game. And I am saying, like, I fully ex- agree and accept yeah. and believe in his decision to give that game 7 out of 10. You know, yeah. I'm not disputing that at all. Like, I, I genuinely don't think because he's not someone that has form for doing anything like that, uh, that he would deliberately low score a game. No, and again, like I'm not saying he deliberately deliberately gave it 7 out of 10 but you can't help but feel he knew that by giving this game 7 out of 10 what was going to come from yeah no I I, I would agree that as soon as he decided it was a 7 out of 10 he goes I'm going to get a lot of shit for this I would I would not for a second go I'm going to give this a 7 out of 10 so that I get a lot of shit no again I I feel maybe I'm not wording it correctly. I don't feel that he gave it seven out of ten for that, but he knew what was going to come from it and was fine. Oh yeah, well, like, and was fine with that the fact that was going. Oh to happen. yeah, well, like he's had he's had uh, history with any time he rightly criticizes Nintendo for anything, sure. he gets shit, and he's been blackballed. Well, to be fair, when he rightly criticizes anyone, he's been blackballed by I think Konami, Capcom, and <laughs> Nintendo uh, for rightly giving them shit consistently. Yeah. Um, I I. I think the, the the guy is um an, an absolute um beacon of in in this age of people talking about ethics in video game journalism i think he's one of the the few who genuinely do, like he doesn't care what people he won't make a review like he won't review something really well cuz he's afraid that if he doesn't he'll get shit for it. Mm-hmm. He will he will give you his honest opinion whether it's to his detriment or not. Yeah, yeah. Uh all the time. Um and there's very few people like him left. Like Jeff Gersman is another one who would be my other kind of um 
I don't want to say idle in video game journalism, but he's one, he's one of those guys where I'm just like, I can always respect, because Jeff as well, Jeff also had the exact same concerns and probably would have given the thing like three or four stars if it had been his review, but yep. it wasn't him to yep. review it. And no one gave him shit. Do you know why? Because Jeff Gersman's been doing it since 1996 and people know better. And also, like, <laughs> you know, I think everyone knows by now, like when... Everyone <laughs> Rooster Teeth thought they knew what to do oh, by, by trying to call out Jeff Gersman. But here's the thing, like, Jeff, Jeff has like he's weird tangibles you know like red dead yeah um but his by his own internal logic it always works and what it comes back to is that gaming is an art form and it's subjective i can't think of the amount of times i've said that i mean yeah of course just because i agree with everything jim sterling said for him i can see why he sees as a 7 out of 10 game I would give this game my firstborn child i love it that much (laughs) and it doesn't mean either of us are wrong no no um but we are rational thinking reasonable human beings a rarity in this day and age and unfortunately and this is why you know i fully agree with the notion that gamers should all be dead and (laughs) only humans should be able to play video games uh moving on let's do a quick uh snap through the news here for uh, five or ten minutes just to get through everything else the original xbox turns 15 in europe this week um memories of um classic xbox stuff were you an original xbox guy um, so I, when I used to go to my friend's house, um, who I would get my tape for Raw and Smackdown every week yeah. back in the day, uh, he had an original Xbox and I remember holding that original controller in my hand and going, <laughs> fuck right off. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, and I remember playing the original Halo and going, I remember, fuck Is this right a off. console for giants? Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, like that was Microsoft's big jump into the console market. I remember seeing... Uh, the Rock up on stage talking about the original Xbox. Oh, I meant the Nick Cage film. The no, Rock. no. Um, Seeing the Rock on the DVD player of the Xbox. I want to see Nick Cage sh- selling me a console. <laughs> uh, you know, it has its place. Um, I don't really care for it. I never had one. You know, I came along for the 360 when they actually sorted out a decent controller and really got into online multiplayer and the live marketplace. But hey, I mean, you know, they had the Xbox Live marketplace on the original Xbox. It has its place. You know, it had X, um, it had Halo. You know, which could be, if you want to think about what is the definition of a, a console app killer, that is it. Yeah. Um. So yeah, you know, it's it's it has its place in 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 gaming lore. You yeah. know. Um. Follow up on Ryan. What, what we got to the bottom of Ryan being more expensive on Switch. What's what's the cliff notes there on that one for um, people who wh- listened to that story on well, the show last I, week? I can tell you that it's not because the money is on um, making the cartridges taste worst. <laughs> which is what someone came to Nintendo are providing that free of charge, are they? Uh, it's kind of weird, right? So, so uh, the developers of Rhyme said basically they had to take into consideration that they had to make this for Switch. That, you know, that wasn't the original plan. They've had to incorporate those costs from somewhere. Um, it doesn't really seem like there's actually any conclusion that's come to it because there's, um, you know, other developers with games that are coming out that also seem to be a little bit more expensive. And we're talking digital-only games as well. So I'm not entirely sure what is going on here. Like, this Eurogamer article kind of says that we're, we're still not really sure why this is. Um, other than Rhyme coming out and specifically saying, look, this game wasn't originally for, for Switch. We've taken it into consideration. Um, I don't... Is there... the prices for Ukulele yet? Because that's now gone gold if i'm right um oh god there is but i, I can't think of it right so, now I'll, I'll look it up as you're talking so ukulele minute. would be an interesting one because obviously that was originally for wii u and they moved that to the switch so that would be an interesting one to see price wise what they've done with that 
So, uh, oh, actually, no, they don't have prices for um, coming soon games on the, on the, on the Switch Store, I don't no. think. So, uh, well, you know, I'll keep an eye on that, because that, that one is, is interesting. Uh, PS4 games are now coming to PlayStation now. It's almost like they got worried because Xbox are doing a way better deal. Yeah, although they still need to fucking incorporate into PS Plus, as we... Was this last week we were discussing? Yeah, yeah we were talking about how that, yeah. that, that's, the, that's the killer. If you roll that into the PS Plus subscription and just up the cost, because the cost is going up to, to 60 quid this year for... Uh, PS Plus. Oh, well, for the year? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, it, it it was a story we reported last year, but it's only coming into effect at some stage this year. I don't know when. Right. Uh, the, the cost for the year-long subscription, the monthly subscription is still the same price if you're getting really short-term stuff, but to get it for the full year is now going to be 60 euros. Sure, which is still a very, very good deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you can roll in PS, PS Now to that, brilliant. Yep. Uh, but yeah, um, this will be exciting to you, Mark. Parappa the Rapper Remastered which is a mouthful to say, uh-huh. uh, has finally got its launch date. It's launching on the 4th of April, so not long to wait now. Will you be diving back into this one? Um, I have too many other things to play. I want to play Ideally, Nier would or... you like to dive back into this one? I would ideally, but I feel like I want to A, play Nier Automatica, and B, Night in the Woods before I look at anything else. So um, at some point, I'll probably jump into it. But uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, it was never one that uh, on PS1, because I wasn't a PS1 kid, it was never one that I massively played, and rhythm games have never been a massive thing for me, to be honest. No. I always appreciated the aesthetic of it, and music. It's got a real fucking good soundtrack. There's a real kind of quality charm to it. Um, Quake Champions, which we talked about uh, at E3, uh, getting announced, uh, is going to have a free-to-play basic model. Uh, which is interesting. So it's going to start as a free-to-play game where the basic class of Warrior uh, will be free. So you can basically try out all the game modes as this one basic character. And the way they're going to earn money off of that is that all the, the champions, the different kind of uh, creatures and, and warriors and stuff that you see in the trailers for Quake Champions, they're going to be the ones you have to pay for. Which is an interesting way. To, it, it's kind of like the anti-Overwatch approach where Overwatch made you pay for the game, but then gave you all the characters and all the modes for free. This is, we're giving you the game for free, but anything you want to tack on to the game, then you're going to have to pay for. Your, your thoughts on this? Because this is kind of, this might have an interesting effect on balancing to it's, me. Look, it's it's taking into, um, like, how Mamorphicas play uh, yeah. massively multiplayer, massively online multiplayer games. Uh, you know, like your... Um, games I'm thinking of, uh, Dota's and uh, Paragon's or whatever. So they're clearly taking that model, and that model does work. You know, That model does have money behind it. And yeah. it's a kind of model where you can constantly add content onto it um, and skin maps, uh, skin packs, sorry, maps and whatever else. Um, I imagine they're looking at uh, companies like Valve and Epic and seeing that model and how effective it is, and they want in on that. And I don't particularly blame them for it. Um... What will come of that is, yeah, there will be a lot of constant complaining about tweaks to the balance of the gameplay, but that's just what happens when you have anything like like mm. this. Um, like even fucking Street Fighter Five, there are constant complaints about every patch that comes and one of the characters gets quote unquote nerfed. But I think it's I think it's a good way to go. Um, you know, I, I think it will keep people playing Quake for longer. Um, so yeah, uh, a new Dreamcast game has been found. Believe it or not, in the year of our Lord 2017, Mark Robinson. Uh, Dreamcast enthusiasts have made a pl- made playable an unreleased racing game found in a dev kit. Millennium Racer Y2K Fighters, which is the most Dreamcast-era name for a game I have ever heard. 
uh, was a fantastic, a futuristic racing game in the mold of Wipeout that came out on PC in 1999. It was built by Russian developer Kriat Studio and published by Cryo Interactive. Here's what it looks like on PC. Of note, racers wide, uh, ride floating wireframe bikes. It turns out a Dreamcast port was created but never released. Earlier this month, and this is the crazy story, the owner of a live journal site who goes by the name Japanese underscore cake <laughs> was contacted by someone called Kurinin84 who claimed to own a Katana Dreamcast dev kit. So for those of you who don't know, like dev kits are the kind of the, or, or debug systems are like the kind of the versions of a console's OS, the, the bare bones of a console that are given to developers to develop their their port of the game on so that it will actually run on the console. Uh you don't walk into a shop and buy these. These are sent to you by the platform uh, creator. Um, according to their message, on the hard drive were files for an unreleased Millennium Racer Y2K Fighters. According to a post by Japanese Cake, it's weird saying that, these files were not for a demo or some incomplete version of the game, but a complete Dreamcast port of the Millennium Racer Y2K Fighters. Japanese Cake then released the files for use on an emulator. Now another Dreamcast enthusiast called Tom Charnock, posting on a website called the Dreamcast Junkyard, which I will be immediately visiting after this show, has managed to get the game up and running on a Dreamcast itself, and it runs pretty well. That's a bit crazy, isn't it? Well, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure... That's I've, a cool little story. I've, I've heard about um, games coming out. Like, I'm pretty sure the, the Saturn still has a game that comes out right again, or like the fucking Neo Geo. Mm. Um, but like, yeah, there's there's people who go back and will design games for it and then try and like craft up the boxes for it. But it, it's very rare for a game that no one knew existed to be dug up on a dev kit, someone to take the files and finish the game. If there is a console where I, I expected that would happen, it would have been the Dreamcast. Yeah, because people abandoned that shit in a hurry exactly. once it started to go south. Um, Hearthstone, in, uh, their prices are increasing, and you've written here, hashtag Brexit, Mark. Talk to me. Yeah, well, look, so, um, prices for, so I think they're up, uh, increasing the prices anyway across Europe, um, but basically, uh, like, if you wanted to get two packs, uh, they're increasing that from one ninety nine to two ninety nine, which is a 50% increase, um, but if you go to uh, like any of the European prices, where they are two sixty nine in euros, they're only up to, to two ninety nine. So it's only eleven eleven percent increase. Yeah. Um. So like across the board, the prices look the same there because um you know two packs two ninety nine in pounds two ninety nine in Europe. But obviously the the currency conversion makes the change there. Um. And you know, look, Brexit plays a part in that. You know, our mm. we've gone ahead and we've fucked our economy. And not to go on into a, a Moriarty tangent into politics here, but um, I don't know if you saw any of the fucking tweets today uh, about, like, do we know what we're doing with this? Yeah. And the response pretty much being, no. Yeah. It's not really comforting. No, um, not great. Yeah. Um, John Carmack, one of the uh, the, the minds behind uh, id Software. Um, He's a lad. Yeah, a lad, a friend. Uh, indeed um, of gaming uh, and the current CTO chief technical officer over at Oculus uh, he has been embroiled in a long protracted series of legal disputes with Zenimax who are the parent company that bought uh, id and he is now suing them again so the the, the initial lawsuit which we reported on the show was over did um 
did John Carmack develop technology uh, that was then used in Oculus when he was on Zenimax time, when Zenimax were still employing him technically. Um, so that, that dispute got settled. And uh, now there's this where he's suing them because apparently um, when it were bought by Zenimax and it, what's interesting to note from this is that uh, the documents for this court proceeding, uh, it came out that it was worth $150 million at the time, which is an incredible sum of money for such a relatively small studio that weren't exactly, this was kind of after their heyday, before their rebirth, shall we say. Um, I'd say Doom made a lot of money. Indeed. Um, but as part of the, the sale, he had to sell his, his own individual, because he was one of the founders of the company. So he had to sell his shares back to Zenimax. Um, and apparently he uh, wasn't paid for that. <laughs> so now he's suing them in the amount of $22 million, which is for uh, failure to pay him uh, out of what he describes in the court documents as, and I quote, sour grapes. Yeah. Um, so it's that plus legal damages and stuff like that. So uh, that's poor John Carmack. He is just never going to... Just never ne- going to see the end of that shit. Never-ending fucking story, eh? Uh, the final story for this week is uh, A Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild story. Do I need to close my ears and eyes No, this, this? this is not a spoiler thing. We okay. talked about him on the show last week, but there's a character... Um, I can't think of his name now. There's a character in Legend of Zelda who's basically your guy that helps you upgrade inventory slots, and he's the guy who I described last week as... Um, sometimes, Mark, you'll be walking around and you look to your right or your left or into the distance, and you'll say to yourself... Is that a giant piece of broccoli with a couple of maracas? Uh-huh. Uh, and it is. And this is the guy that you need to bring your Korok seeds to. Um, hold on till I get his... Um, da, 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 da. Hestu is his name. Okay. Um, and it, because this is a big game, you, you find Korok seeds in all sorts of hidden places. You'll see a little sparkle, so you have to interact with something. Uh, a Korok will pop up and will give you one of their seeds. And there's 900 of these bastards. Yeah, you return it to him, and like, so the first time you upgrade an inventory slot, so the first time you upgrade a weapon slot, it costs you one seed, second time two seeds, and so on. Um, and the same can be said for... The same can be said for, uh, like, if you go into your, your bow slots, it takes one the first time, two the second time. Same with your shield, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, yes, there are 900, roughly, in the game. And someone has finally found all 900. And uh, you get a little present from Hestu. A literal piece of shit. <laughs> So if you open the story here, Mark, you'll see in Link's inventory slot there, there is no spoiler really for the game in the inventory screen. There's Hestu's gift, which is shaped suspiciously like a cartoon turd. And the description of it is, a gift of friendship given to you by Hestu. It smells pretty bad. So he's given you a big golden lump of shite. Nintendo. <laughs> Imagine being the guy who spent all their time finding 900 Although, to be and fair, getting a piece of shit for it. It kind of sticks with consistency. Like, if you um, get the 100 gold sculptures in Ocarina of Time, like, by the time you've already got 50, you already have all the necessary items. Like, you have the giant's wallet and whatever else. So, this is that. But even worse. Those fuckers. Absolutely. So you won't be collecting all 900 then? No, possibly not. Although no. I am very, very much loving that game, so who knows how far I'll get into it. Uh, that's going to do it for the news this week. We're going to get uh, Kevin back in the studio now, and I'm going to go to my remote location uh, as we record our uh, special look, our book club this week, looking back at possibly the greatest wrestling game ever conceived by humankind, 
That is no mercy from the N64. Diggity Dog, WWF No Mercy is a professional wrestling video game released in 2000 on the Nintendo 64 console and published by THQ. It is named after the World Wrestling Federation annual pay-per-view event of the same name. No Mercy is the follow-up to 1999's WWF WrestleMania 2000 and the last WWF game released for the Nintendo 64. No Mercy was well received by players and critics alike. Gentlemen, um... I have many, many, many fond memories of No Mercy. Um, I came to this as, I think, my if I remember correctly, uh, one of my first wrestling games. Because uh, I, I came along just after the Attitude, Attitude Era and then had to go back and watch all of it. Uh, my, my first pay-per-view, my first wrestling that I ever watched was the Royal Rumble 2000. Um, one of the first things I ever saw was Cactus Jack getting pedigreed into thumbtacks. And I was hooked from there as a 12-year-old. It didn't ruin me at all. <laughs> um... And so this game in particular, in terms of the roster, um, really appealed to me. Um, for you, for for you, Kevin, like, I mean, I imagine you've played many, many wrestling games over the years. But what is it about this one in particular, do you think, that A, um, just has that certain quality uh, that has kind of held the test of time? Um, I really think it's probably, like, it's it's just the best engine for a wrestling game ever that manages to get the pace of wrestling kind of down well it is it's probably the fairest wrestling game that's out there it's probably the wrestling game that you can get good at quickest it doesn't feel like it's a game that has a lot of cheapness to it or kind of like oh you can exploit this or exploit that it is a real pure wrestling game experience and I think as well, it is obviously aided greatly by the fact of, you know, it is got a roster and a set in a time when wrestling was definitely at the total peak. You know, the late 2000 WWF, I can tell you as, a, as an absolute fact, folks, having rewatched it all, that is the best of the WWF in the Attitude Era. So I think all those things come together to make a really satisfying wrestling game where you can do really cool, crazy, amazing things. You got to work for it. It's easy to get good at it is very difficult to impossible to master the game i've been playing for around about what 16 years i guess it's been out for now so i've been playing it for 16 years i still couldn't tell you without you know without certainty that i'm definitely going to be able to reverse this move or beat this guy or do this thing you know there is a there is it's something about it that means that it's a real balanced game you know yeah like the the counterparts to this on the PlayStation at the time was uh, SmackDown, and SmackDown in its own right was an enjoyable game, but was very much a kind of arcade focus type wrestling game. Uh, kind of invoked a similar spirit to um, the original uh, WrestleMania game for the PlayStation and I think Sega Saturn, I want to say. Might have even been on the Mega Drive 32X, um, which was just kind of a pure arcade experience. Um, and I enjoyed them, certainly as like a 12-year-old, but there was something about the way that this game, it kind of took the element of the Fire Pro Wrestling series, where it was a lot more tactical, uh, a lot slower, but not slow in a dull way, but as I kind of mentioned, in a, in a tactical way there. 
Um, do you think that that plays a part in it having the longevity that it's had uh, compared to the SmackDown series, which in its own right has now kind of transformed into a sort of THQ engine light version of, uh, or sorry, Aki version of what the the uh, this original series was? Um, because I think the, the SmackDown games now, or the WWE 2K games, have, uh, have just metamorph- metamorphosized into into a kind of weaker version of this. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's taken them 16 years to, like, figure out some of the most basic things ever. They're, like, kind of, you know, 2013, like, hey, guys, we figured out that maybe we should slow it down. Like, really? You think? Like, duh. <laughs> hey, here's an idea. Why don't you watch wrestling and then make a game that's kind of <laughs> like that, not some weird, super fast bullshit that no one can enjoy? I mean, I really do think that that was r- what was so strong about it was that you could not button mash you could not rush it. You could not just go, all right, here you go. You couldn't give it to two people who never played the game before and then straight away be like, you know, beating the world or whatever. You would always, if you're playing No Mercy or WrestleMania 2000 or any of the previous kind of AKI games, you would need a sit down. You'd need a debrief. The controls were important and you would need yeah. to remember those controls if you were to be successful. You needed to really kind of put a bit of time into it. And I do really think that like, yeah, those 2K games, I mean, the original SmackDown ones, I thought they were so fast. I hated them so much. Like, And I, my cousin had a PlayStation, I had an N64, so we were always at loggerheads about which one was better and all that. And him and like all his mates would be like, well, this has got Hell in a Cell and 9 million characters and full motion video and you know CD quality music. And we've got, you know, a GIF for Titantron and as the entrance music for Dwayne the Rock Johnson and you know we didn't have loads of modes on on No Mercy we you know No Mercy had the cage match which we had in previous games and No Mercy added one mode which was uh, a ladder match and that was kind of in comparison to Smackdown 2 where that year they added a casket match a Hell in a Cell match an Inferno match they did everything but they did it to the bare minimum Whereas No Mercy did very, very few things, but did them with a finesse and with like a, a thought out, you know, they really thought about people playing in these matches, how they could be competitive. They really thought about the mechanics. Like there's a lot more thought and care went into it. The people who were making this were trying to make a great wrestling game. They weren't trying to, you know, hit a deadline and get something out this year so they could sell some, some, some games quickly. Yeah, uh, I think there's there's a certain element to the early SmackDown games in particular that that feels a lot like arcadey, almost like pinballs shooting around the ring. Uh, whereas one of the great things about No Mercy is, like you said, Gavin, that the slow down and there's a, there's a weight to the collision on the game. Like when you throw a kick or throw a punch or perform a move on somebody, there's a, there's like a, a satisfying crunch to it. It makes me sound all kinds of sadistic saying that, but it's Look, it's true. Like it actually felt like you were performing moves or it felt like you were throwing a punch rather than feeling like you were pinging around the place at the speed of light there was nothing oh, as satisfying as like hitting a super kick that was your, like your strong style attack uh, and yeah. then knocking them out and setting them up to power bomb them onto a chair which was perfectly placed so satisfying and like what I loved about it as well was that like there was a real that that pace really meant then like that when you were playing against someone there was a lot of mind games that could go in there like if you put some of the Tombstone pile driver in the SmackDown game it was like up down boom two seconds the Tombstone pile driver no mercy 
you know, when you give someone that move, they have to think about what they've done and the mistakes that they have made that have led up to this moment and this move that they're about to receive. It is a slow, it's a slow day and you can savor it, which means when shit goes wrong for you, it's agonizing. But when stuff goes your way, it is so, so, so satisfying. And to your point as well about, you know, SmackDown being so arcadey, you ever notice that SmackDown had that music on it as, on default when you were playing the game, the da 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 the really fast music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you ever went into the options menu and you turned that music off and you tried to play the game, the game suddenly became an incredibly weird, abstract, like, just didn't feel right. Whereas with No Mercy, everything everyone did straight away, I don't know about you guys, but everyone turned that music off straight away because the game... The mechanics felt like you could focus on the wrestling. They weren't trying to hide anything like that. Without the music, the game felt right because it was about the wrestling, not about this kind of hyped-up arcade presentation. I know there's one of the sound, one of the the songs that has a kind of slow groove. The ba 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 ba. I could I could jam to that back in the day. I think one of one of the the other um, kind of comparisons between the series is that. Um, even though it was the more arcadey series, there was always a certain element to SmackDown where, by and large, it was trying to take itself very seriously. It was trying to be the wrestling game. Whereas No Mercy, whereas it did feel like a serious kind of tactical struggle in matches sometimes, it definitely was much more self-aware than the SmackDown series. Uh, and no better evidence of that than in some of the plunder that you could pull from the crowd oh. uh, and strike your opponents with. Uh Two of my favorites being uh, the ring bell, which gave the most satisfying ding as you sculled somebody with it, uh, and the giant can of Steve Weiser that you could unlock in the shop. Yeah, and also, like, as well, using the giant copy of The Rock's terrible autobiography, <laughs> The Rock Says, which unfortunately you can only beat people to death with as opposed to making them read and die from boredom. <laughs> You also had there was the um the 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 bouquet of roses with the lead pipe in it that Eddie Guerrero was fond of using back in the day. It was a weapon in there. It was a, just a, a great game for silly plunder. Oh, and of course as well, let's not forget the absolute worst weapon of all. Even though all weapons did equivalent damage in the game, but yeah. if you went into that crowd and you pulled out the dreaded water bottle, you were like, no! <laughs> this won't work, even though it will give the same damage as the sledgehammer if I took it out, which looks slightly cooler. Yeah, and there was there was a great as well. There was a great thunk to the belt shots in there as well. It was it was really well thought out silliness. Um, and I think as and- well, like, I mean, what you were saying about it being, um, you know, kind of like SmackDown taking itself so seriously. And I, I thought what was interesting about No Mercy is that I know for me, one of the ways that I learned the moves of you know rest, main wrestling moves was by making my character in No Mercy and painstakingly going through every single one of those moves, picking them out and kind of, you know, and you could preview them and you really felt like kind of these moves actually had, you know, impact. You could appreciate Mm. the ones that had, you know, pins and bridges and all that kind of stuff. Whereas in SmackDown, I always felt myself, even when I had the games, you know, I was buying them myself, I would just clone the the moves of someone else and just play it because it felt like it didn't matter. I didn't need a strategy. I didn't need certain moves to wear down a body part or submissions or anything. I could just do whatever and I'd have just as much chance of winning. 
And that brings me on to one of my favorite, and most people who are still big fans of the game to this day, one of their favorite features of it, and that is the creation suite and the the, the sheer levels of madness you can get to if you have enough spare time. Um, and I, I'm going to go around the, the the virtual table here and get everyone because we we've all done it. We the the, the mortifying shame sometimes in, in hindsight, we've all designed a character that that we see as ourselves in some sort of way in the game. Uh, Kevin, who who was your your de facto character? Your WWF champion in the day. Oh, well, like like my hero McFoley, I had many guises, many faces over the years. <laughs> um, first, I was Kevin Devil, who was uh, just me in a cane mask and a big boss man <laughs> uniform. And then I realized I didn't look very much like Kevin Devil, so I kind of the 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 ego split, and I had Kevin, who was me, and then I had Devil, who I would then manage. So I saw my I was always a very humble child, guys. You have to understand. There's some tech- I, great I nonsense this is great here. Character be a manager. I was like, no, I'm not going to actually wrestle. I'm going to accompany Devil to the ring because he's the wrestler. I'll just be Vince McMahon, Paul Bear, whoever it may be. And then after a while, I decided, you know what? I will make my guy a wrestler because who wants to play as Satan? That's not very Catholic of me. So I made myself <laughs> to be a corporate Kevin. So I would uh, be at the corporate sellout because I wanted a gimmick. My friend Paddy said, you should make a guy just be a corporate dog and wrestle in like a suit and tie. So I would be corporate Kevin. And the rule I gave myself was if I couldn't pull that off out in the schoolyard, in the playground, if I couldn't do the move, I wouldn't do it in the game. So when Cousin Owen would be giving himself swanton bombs and 450 splashes, I'd be like, no, back rake, abdominal stretch, eye poke, moves that I will do to you at lunchtime today. Um, Mark, who who is your character, and and how would have he he have fared with corporate Kevin? So my my main character, based off of me naturally, uh, was a character called Nitro, um, which you know, <laughs> years years later would be st- stolen uh, by a, a young Johnny Nitro. God damn it! Um, <laughs> with his long tights of different color coordinations for the four different options you could have, um, <laughs> and his finishes were from a standing front position. It was um, the Ace Crusher slash Diamond Cutter, or as it would later be known, the Randall Keith Autumn. And uh, I would also have a Swanton Cutter, a Canyon you. Cutter, obviously as well. Apologies. Um, and then I would obviously have a Swanton Bomb because what twelve, thirteen year old slightly social outcast type person wouldn't have a swanton bomb in tribute to uh to the hardies and uh yeah they, they were kind of the, and i had a super kick as well as like my kind of strong style um strong attack because um it really pissed my friend off when i'd spam that move for about 10 minutes straight uh <laughs> usually when i'd whip them to the ropes and then do it and then kick them out of the ring so um and i think i had like a, a kind of strong style saito suplex for the for the the back finisher Right, so as a, as a preface to my character before I'm soundly buried for it, um, it, this No Mercy was like I think my second wrestling game I'd ever played properly. The one previous was the uh, definitely in hindsight unbearably bad WWF Attitude. <laughs> uh, yeah, and oh. I, it was the, that was the the last of those real kind of uh, proper we're trying to be a wrestling game, but also a fighting game because moves were all about button combos in that game. If you remember. 
oh, you have to do those stupid combinations and everyone just pause in and like, it's like, what a miserable experience of the game. As, as bad as, as, bad as that, as bad as that game is, is not as bad as WCW Mayhem or back, Backstage that's Assault. That's true. Yeah, no, that's true. No, that's true. But I mean, the, the Attitude games, God, like, I remember playing them as a kid and like hating them and thinking there was something wrong with me because the official Nintendo magazine gave it like 9 out of 10. Like, oh, it's the greatest, <laughs> best game ever. Like, oh, God. What a yeah. bunch of idiots we were for playing that trash. So so my character came across from there because it was one of those games where you couldn't actually give your character a name. You wanted you to pick from a pre-selected set oh, of brilliant. <laughs> character names. So this is where this this character name comes from. Uh, and his name was Hardcore with a K. Oh, man. Oh, yeah, so you knew I meant business, because things were misspelled in 2000. That was cool. Zeds were used for plurals willy-nilly back in those days. X started so many words. It was it was a whole thing. I'm really uh, and- impressed that you have the carryover from Attitude, because my brother was in the same uh, boat as well. His character was called Axeman on Attitude, and he became the Axeman on uh, No Mercy and WrestleMania 2000 as well. Yeah. So uh, I, I yeah. still... Look, you don't bring one... kayfabe. That's the rule. Yeah, all right? <laughs> yeah that's, that's the one name I still still give whatever uh whatever character i create just trying out the wwe games nowadays I, I always call it hardcore with a k just going back um and the other thing you need to know about this character was that uh i've been watching wrestling for about four years at this point i've been watching this since I was about six years old uh and even though Shawn michaels was from day one and still to this day is my favorite wrestler of all time in 2000 i don't know whether it was something in the water but i was super into booger red I was way into Biker Taker. <laughs> I was way into it. I don't know you why. I, I, that, <laughs> Are you always kicking arsehole's ass? <laughs> oh, indeed. Oh, indeed. So I was coming out to, I think it was Jericho's music with Undertaker's video, oh. which, was a, which was a whole thing. I had um, a too cool jean jacket that I had uh, dyed so that you couldn't see the too cool on it. Uh, and I had the uniquely 2000s combination of ponytail, sunglasses, black wife beater, and jorts. Yikes. Yeah. Wait, now, it's safe to say, it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty much Zandig, yeah. It's, it's safe to say I don't recreate that look nowadays. <laughs> um, and and the, the, other, the other mortifying shame of it was that my finish was the Falcon Arrow, which when weeks after deciding that and locking it in uh, when myself and my cousin were creating our wrestlers, finding out uh, for a fact that that was Hardcore Holly's move uh, was a subject of great embarrassment at the time. Yeah, and it's funny because like, it was always Dan as Hardcore Holly's finisher, and yet I did the entire run of the Attitude Era and all the pay-per-views. Bob did not hit that move <laughs> once. Literally not once on pay-per-view. I've only seen him do it in two matches on SmackDown in 1999. Only time. Yet it's known forever as Bob Holly's move. Bullshit. What a pro. He's protecting the finish. <laughs> protecting the finish because no one kicks out of it when he hits us. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, the the, cre- the creation seat was incredible, and you could even go in and edit wrestlers that were already there. And one of my favorite things about the game was being able to edit uh, wrestlers, and then the opening to the game would change based on the changes you had made to those characters. Such a Such cool, amazing touch. cool feature. Yeah. And I love yeah. that as well, because like I remember this game came out, and SmackDown 2 came out both at the same time at Christmas of 2000. And I remember within weeks of that happening, Val Venus joined the right to censor, which meant that he had to <laughs> wear um, he had to wear a shirt and tie and pants. So straight away, I could go in and put him in the right to censor on my game. And I, I was laughing to my cousin, going, "Ha, you know, uh, 
I'm able to do that. And he goes, yeah, I'm able to do it as well. See? And he just had made it so that he came out with the right to censor in his white tights. It's looking like same, a though. fucking idiot. It's not the same. <laughs> yeah. two- I actually would uh, do a storyline in, in No Mercy where I would have the right to censor running roughshod. I would slowly make other wrestlers join the right to censor. Uh, Chris Benoit <laughs> and Chris Jericho both unfortunately had to join the right to censor and uh, Jericho had to cut his rock and roll hair as a result. And I just love that that game let you do that. Because like, now yeah. the feature on 2K that you can do it, it takes literally years to load it up. Yeah. You have to save. It's complicated, different attires. I don't, it just, it's not fun. Whereas back then, you just go in, you can mess around on another attire. You had special referee attire. You had your backstage run-in attire. It was just such an easy interface why can't we have that anymore by, by 2002 i in my game i'd split the dudleys up i had reverend devon in his all black attire <laughs> i had uh i had bubbery dudley in and a pair of shorts and whatever else and yeah like it yeah. it was even up until i think because i was still making changes to my roster like when i started watching tna as well because i, I loaded up yeah. uh, my copy of no mercy not too long ago and i had a, i had like cm punk but with the the long blonde hair and the the shorts from his Ring of Honor days. I had like early Styles, early Joe. Um, for some reason, I had created the NWO, which consisted of the Dudleys, Kevin Nash, the British Bulldog. Um, I'll get over. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, respect me, Booker Man. Um, and yeah, just like it, the the level of customization for a game back in two thousand. Because I mean, I. As as much as we can bury uh, WWF attitude, and we can, that game in terms of its kind of uh, create a wrestler mode was actually pretty in depth, and you could do a lot with it. Um, you could actually it it kind of was game breaking a little a little bit in WWF attitude because you could make literally every single move you had a finisher. A fin- yeah, 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 and like so that obviously got toned down and was made into a more fairer system for for No Mercy and the the, the Yaki games in general. Um, and it was super satisfying that you had to kind of unlock some of the super special moves. And everyone has a different opinion on like unlockable content like that. But I always, I always enjoyed, you know, going into the mall after playing through a particular storyline, collecting a bunch of the, the the dollars, and like unlocking further content and unlocking new moves. And um, like, I wouldn't have the patience for that these days. But back then, you know, as a as a twelve year old, like having the time to do that. Um, and the the other thing as well, which we haven't mentioned, is the the single player mode of No Mercy. And I think one of the things that makes it so uh, appealing and so kind of memorable is that because of the the period of when it came out, and you know the Attitude Era is a very memorable time for people of our age. Um, and it kind of follows the storyline through like late uh, late cr- uh, winter of '99 and goes through to through WrestleMania 2000. And um, there's, you know, The Rock and there's Triple H from, like, early February. And then there's Stevie Richards. Yeah. <laughs> and I couldn't figure that one out for the longest time until, for some reason, <laughs> one day I clocked, oh, yeah, Big Show's not in this game. Where the fuck is he? Um, I mean, that's probably the highlight of Stevie Richards' career, I have to imagine. Yeah, figuratively, uh, not literally headlining WrestleMania. Yeah. I mean, if you know the story, the reason was is because the Big Show had been taken off TV because uh, he had like uh, he had like weight problems and attitude problems. They sent him down to developmental for basically a couple of months to kind of get his shit in gear. And him not being in the video game was like a huge mark against him because obviously that meant that he wasn't making any of the royalties from the from that. So they were taking it really seriously at the time, like really 
really, you know, letting them know it's not good enough <laughs> your uh, your performance. They were paying them a million dollars a year, I guess, at the time. So I mean, you could see why they would would do that. Uh, to, to start wrapping things up here a little bit, is there any kind of big drawback or anything you guys looking back on it now you, you'd wished had been there at the time? Or is this kind of, at least for the time, pretty much as, as good as it got? I mean, my only real issue with the game at the time, I remember being really jealous of SmackDown having the ability to, you know, change the color of your character to be like any kind of, you know, wild, wacky color so you could have like aliens and ghosts and all kind of weird shit. Yeah. I like, I, you know, as a, as a kid who was constantly drawing weird cartoons and stuff, it did kind of annoy me that I had these kind of restraints of what I could and couldn't do. I couldn't just make mm. anything randomly. Whereas on SmackDown, I felt like you did have a little bit more of that opportunity. In hindsight, though, knowing though that is was probably the reason why we had the best feature of all, which is being able to edit anyone because everyone's made on these kind of same rules. I guess that probably ends up being a benefit. The main downside, though, for me, I don't know if this happened to you guys. I got the game. I got the game on release for Christmas, and it was the glitched copy yep. of the game. Yep. This is back in the day when... Oh, no. You- turn home you can you know get a patch or anything like that you've bought the game i couldn't go into mom and go hey can i get another one please it's like there you go that's it it was the most soul destroying thing when you heard that that kind of horrible default music that would play when your creative character came into the ring as the default character as your memory got wiped again there were some minimal workarounds but i never unlocked everything in the smackdown mall because my game was broken and that kind of always, for me, spoke highly of the game. If you told me any other game ever, yet alone wrestling game, that had a game-breaking reset-all-your-progress bug that intermittently happened randomly without warning, I would have said, I'm not going to play this game. It will make me miserable. And yet, I probably played No Mercy more than any game ever, I would imagine. I've spent hundreds of thousands of hours playing it in spite of that massive game-breaking glitch, which, of course, was fixed later on down the line but when they fixed the glitch because i got an, a fixed copy of the game later on you know a few years ago the the fixed glitch the one that fixed the glitch they removed blood from it so there is no perfect way to play neo mercy <laughs> from the, uh, the united kingdom or ireland or any of europe or any of the pal region it's it's one way or the other you need to have blood or a save file you can't have both I think one uh, of, any drawback for you, Mark? I think the only major issue is is the audio quality, but I mean, it's it's the cartridges, it's the N sixty four. There's no workaround with that. Um, you know, the the video quality, what you come out to, um, is is laughable at best. But again, <laughs> yeah. that's you know, that's that's what um, that, that's what you had to work with on on the N sixty four at the time. So, like, other than that. Um, I can still pick up that game to this day. Like the the best wrestling match I've ever watched was uh, was a fifty five minute match I had Mia's Cactus Jack against Triple H at the Rumble. Like better than the actual match. I'm telling you right now. Like there were yeah. fucking near falls. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, Meltzer giving it six stars. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I, I yeah. had an hour long WrestleMania main event Iron Man match with Kurt Angle once. That was uh, the, the stuff of legend. Now I might have won by about seventy four falls by the time it was <laughs> over, but those people still talk about that match to this day. And one of the key things as well, one of the, the key positives about No Mercy, and you know by extension the N sixty four, is the ease and ability of playing a four player game. Because yeah. I mean I played SmackDown two. Uh, as a four-player game sometimes, but not everyone had the multi-tap. 
Um, and, yeah. you know, it just it wasn't as a frequent kind of thing to do. But with the N64, like, you know, every other uh, couple of days, like, my friends would come around and we were playing three-player, four-player games of, um, you know, anything to the N64, but, you know, specifically No Mercy because we were all wrestling fans and doing all different types of, like, mixed tag matches and ladder matches and, and the Rumble as well, trying to see how long we could survive. And obviously we've seen the extension of that with, um, like, the PAX Rumbles and everything that happens with, like, the, the games journalist community and, and the games development community. Um, and it kind of speaks volumes that, like, you know, no mercy or attitude are the two games they'll go to to do these because of yeah. the quality of it as a four player mode yeah uh, mark just to finish things up now give us your quick elevator pitch someone who hasn't played no mercy before who's listening to you know all what? this talk about I, creator wrestlers i'm gonna leave this to kevin to do because uh, he's our special okay. guest this week so you pop into an elevator kevin with somebody who's never played this game before and you're heading up only a couple of floors on this thing you've got to get out really concisely why someone should get off their arse and play this game shoot Hello, I'm a strange man. You should play this video game from when I was a child. It's really brilliant. If you want to see who truly is the best at simulated violence, then this is the game for you. It is fair. It is hearkening back to the greatest period in wrestling history. And you can create your own character. It's got limitations. It's got charm. But it has got the greatest gameplay in a wrestling game that you will ever, ever, ever come across. Excellent, excellent, excellent. That's a, that's, a, that's a great summation of it, I think. And uh, just before we wrap things up, obviously the last bit of business we have to do is say what the game is going to be for next week. It's my turn this week. And I'm going to take us a little bit forward, Mark, uh, a few years to the GameCube. Next week, we're going to talk about Legend of Zelda, The Wind Waker. Oh, go on then. Yeah. Go on so then, look, look forward to that one, listeners. Uh, so, yeah, we'll, we'll wrap things up. Kevin, I'll give it to you first. I'll, I'll hand off to you. Do, do your plugs. You, you've got a, a Patreon going strong at the moment and, and a few other bits, I'm sure, social media and the like to plug. So fire away. The floor is yours. Sure. You can follow me on Twitter at KevinMan with an F. You can check out my podcast, Attitude Era Podcast, Cinema Swirl, and How To Wrestling, all of which are available on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you can digest podcasts. You can find them there. You can support those shows as well. I've got a patron for the Attitude Era Podcast, patreon.com slash podcast and patreon.com slash Wrestling. There's loads of bonus content on there. Let's plays of wrestling games with myself, Q&A episodes, bonus episodes, out the wazoo, if that's your thing. And of course, as well, uh, you can check out um, upcoming episodes of How To Wrestling on our new website, which will be coming soon, which is howtowrestling.com. Ooh. Uh, Kevin, it's been an absolute pleasure to you. A pleasure having you on Link to the Cast this week. Um, if ever a wrestling game comes up in the future, you, you'll be the first person on the hotline to help us wade through uh, the, the, the sometimes mired world uh, of wrestling games. Uh, it's been an absolute treat talking to you after many years of listening to your quality audio content, sir. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. It's been a blast to talk about this game. I've really, really enjoyed chatting with you guys about No Mercy. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to be back sometime in the future to talk about any other wrestling games that might be up for the chop. Cool. Sounds like a plan. Okay, we're back. It's just the two of us. Mark here, left to... Just the two of us. We can make it if we try. Sorry. Just the two of us. Yeah. You and I. 
Yeah, we're getting a bit punchy. It's late at night here. Uh, Been doing this for a while now. Yeah, as we're wrapping things up here, just want to thank uh, Kevin Mann again one more time for uh, being on the show. It was excellent to talk to the guy. We're great fans of his and his podcast, which everybody here should go check out if they haven't already. Uh, episode 58 of Link to the Cast is now in the bag, Mark Robinson. Um, this podcast... Uh, available through from us at linktothecast.eu uh, is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and most podcast platforms. Just search for Link to the Cast, either uh, as all one word or not. Uh, give us a uh, subscribe there, rating, review. It all helps us help, helps our search engine optimization. Helps get the word out. Tell a friend. Why not? Uh, like I said, the the website is linktothecast.eu. That's kind of where our content is centralized. If you want to get in touch with us, you could drop us an email at linktothecast.gmail.com. Social media, though, is probably the best place to follow us and to get in contact. Facebook.com forward slash linktothecast and at linktothecast on Twitter, where we post uh, all our updates. Go I am manning on, the tweets throughout the day. You are, uh, yeah, Mark is generally on the tweet machine. I have my email linked up to the link to the cast email, so I will see it if Mark does not. Um... I, uh, speaking of the tweet machine, I am at Dave Ryan IV on the tweet machine. The man here beside me is at Lithium Project on the tweet machine. Uh, we stream over at twitch.tv forward slash link to the cast and then later archive over uh, at link to the cast on YouTube. Again, go to YouTube, search for link to the cast, all one word or separately, depending on whatever floats your boat. Mark, we have a weekly video schedule where we have content that goes up on YouTube Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Let's run through the week of content here from link to the cast. Monday is Mark on Mondays. How is Mark on Mondays going at the moment, buddy? Pretty good. Uh, I played Lumo, which is one of the PS Plus games out this month, which is kind of like a, an isometric puzzle platformer. Yeah, when I, when I saw that, because I was downloading Disc Jam for you, I saw that and I went, you know what? I think I'll download this for young Mark Robinson. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Um, now, I wanted to play more Disc Jam, but the fucking servers are all over the place at that moment. I don't know what's going on. So that's a shame. Um, so yeah, so I played a bit of that. I pretty want to continue. Just wanted to get the, the kind of one episode out there. I might look at Tearaway next week because I've been wanting to play that. Uh, I don't know. What kind of it's pick and choose every every week, and I like that. I like that kind of free form. Just see what I like at the time. Uh, Wednesday is Retro Corner 64, where we are chronologically playing every single N64 game. Uh, our next one up is going to be Wave Race 64 because of catastrophic Twitch-related failures that stopped our initial recording of Wave Race 64 uh, being recorded. So that's going to be up with you as soon as we find the time with me traveling and, and everything like that. Uh, and then we will continue on from there at our look at all... Um, yeah, all all releases for the N64 in English-speaking territories over at Retro Corner 64. Thursday is the day this podcast comes out every single week. Enjoy 90 minutes to two hours of us blabbing on about the video games. It's the only thing that gets released that day so that you can enjoy it in isolation. Friday, we finish off the week with Friday Plays. And this week, finally, we'll remember to post the uh, the video I have had banked for about three weeks now of Life is Strange, where we continue to play that. I promise I'm not just holding this out to spite all you lovely people at home. Uh, we will get back to Life is Strange this weekend. I'll have some fresh ones banked over the weekend, hopefully. Anyway, that is going to do it from us. Uh, for Link to the Cast, I have been Dave Ryan. That man there has been Mark Robinson. And we will see you all next week. Bye-bye. Bye.